one of the greatest characters that has ever lived. And I'm sure you're thinking as I say those words, well, you know, every speaker who gets up here starts off by saying that the study you're about to hear or the study that he's just done is the greatest whatever that you'll ever hear. Well, let, me give, let me give to you another statement. Among those born among women, there hath not risen a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Now that statement is given by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Of all of the prophets, and you think about the great prophets that God has sent to men down through time, he's the greatest of them all. That's the man that we have before us this weekend. There was never anyone like John the Baptist. It wasn't just the statement of our Lord, but his own father, in describing him, called him the prophet of the highest in Luke chapter 1. It's in that same chapter where the Lord Jesus Christ is described as the son of the highest. Now, has there ever been any greater son than that? Well, here's his prophet, the prophet of the highest. You know, his influence had spread far and wide. This man who was a nobody. It had spread all the way down to Alexandria in Egypt. Alexandria was the great university city where the Ptolemies had collected all of the writings from all over the world. And there was a man down there named Apollos. And Luke's record in Acts says that he was skilled in what? The teachings of John the Baptist. And the word skilled is a word that's used of one of our pieces of literature. Catechesis. He had categorized John's teaching. He was all the way down in Egypt. And of course, later he made his way to Corinth. An eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, and knowing what? The baptism of John. In the next chapter of Acts, we read of certain disciples who had had separated themselves from the law. And what did they know? They knew the teachings of John the Baptist in Asia Minor, in Ephesus, which was the capital of Asia Minor. His teaching had spread all the way down there to the, to the, the far-flung regions of the empire at that time. And So you, you look at those points and you ask yourself the question, well, well who was John? You know, was he a great man? Was he a CEO? Was he a millionaire? He was a nondescript, living in the wilderness and eating grasshoppers. And if I, if I said that to you, and you didn't know who he was, you would laugh. But that's who he was. There was nobody like him. A man who came into this world as a monument of difference. And a man who wore his message in his person. There was never anybody quite like John the Baptist, except for maybe one. And that, of course, was Elijah, in whose spirit and power he came, dressed almost exactly like John in the, the clothing of nature and living on sparse food in the wilderness. And there is a single message, brothers and sisters, that emerges from John the Baptist's life. You know, the point of these studies is not really going to be hard to grasp, it's really just one single message that emerges from John's life. 
So let's begin in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17 and see the motivation and the reason why John was sent into the world. Luke chapter 1 and verse 17. Here's a statement which helps us to introduce our study. And this encapsulates really all that John the Baptist was about. Verse 16 of Luke chapter 1. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Now there is the principle of John's life. If we can grasp the essence of what this is all about, then we will understand the purpose of John's work. What did Luke mean when he said that he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah? We won't turn some of these references up just to save our time, but you may remember that in Luke chapter 9, the Lord Jesus Christ was making his way through the village of the Samaritans, and they wouldn't receive him. The two sons of thunder, James and John, said, Shall we not bring down fire from heaven and consume them? like Elijah did? And Jesus' answer was, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. So the spirit of Elijah, brothers and sisters, was not terrible, awe-inspiring. It was persuasive. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save. The spirit of Elijah is all about saving, not destroying. What about the power of Elijah? What was the power of Elijah that John came in? We know in John chapter 10, verse 41, that John did no miracles. Not one. But he came in the power of Elijah, who did eight. So it wasn't that sort of power that John came in. The the power of John the Baptist and the power of Elijah was in his voice. It was his voice. They asked him, who are you, John? He said, I'm nothing. Just a voice. So he came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. It was the voice of Yahweh to save. That's going to be the reason why John was sent. He was nothing else but a voice. But what a powerful voice that was. The voice of Yahweh to save men and women. Getting all of us to see, brothers and sisters, that the kingdom of God is almost here. And we need to be ready. Now, that doesn't sound like the Elijah that I know. The Elijah that I know is famous, of course, for bringing down fire from heaven twice on a captain and his 50. So what we've got to do, brothers and sisters, and what we'll do in this first session is we want to go back to where Elijah learned that lesson. That it wasn't about destroying, but rather it was about saving. Because that was the reason why John was sent to exercise this spirit and power that God fully intended Elijah to exercise, but never did, in which we will see John will do as he goes forth to proclaim the voice of Yahweh to save. 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's see what it was that Elijah was meant to do, but, but never ever did. But which one day he will again come and stand on this earth to practice the voice of Yahweh to save. In 1 Kings chapter 19, we know the story. Elijah thought the nation was converted. He saw the sacrifice consumed upon Mount Carmel. He heard them screaming in his ears his own name, the Lord, he is God. He ran before the chariot of Ahab, believing Ahab had been converted. 
And as he followed or ran before Ahab into the gates of Jezreel, that imperious woman Jezebel said, God do more to me. God do so to me and more also if I don't have his blood by tomorrow. Elijah went away depressed, dejected. He thought the nation had changed. He thought the nation was repentant as he saw the sacrifice being consumed upon Mount Carmel. But he just runs away from Jezebel, depressed. The man who had stood in triumph upon Carmel was next found beneath a juniper tree saying, I want to die. I've had enough. And I want to die. And so he went, brothers and sisters, inexorably to Mount Sinai. It's the only time in his life Elijah ever moved without that commandment. He's going to tell God he's been let down. He's going to tell God he's frustrated. And when he gets down here in 1 Kings 19, we'll pick up the record now. He had to learn a tremendous lesson. 1 Kings 19 and verse 9. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Now, in that ninth verse, brothers and sisters, the emphasis in the Hebrew is on the word here. What are you doing here, Elijah, in this place, in Sinai? What is it that you associate with me here? And of course, Elijah had remembered that place, hadn't he? When, when the mountain was all on fire, when the law was given, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard were unable to withstand, that, that even an animal approaching the mountain, they couldn't, they couldn't spear it with an arrow. They had to, to stand back. And that was what Elijah associated with God. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he came to a cave. You know, the Hebrew has the definite article there in verse 9. He came unto the cave. Now, it was either in that cave or beside it, then another man stood and said, don't destroy Israel. Blot me out of the book, but save them. And of course, Elijah had, had totally missed that spirit, hadn't he? In his depression, in his despondency, he had forgotten the history of the man who had stood there so, so many years before. And when the question came from the angel in verse 10, it all comes out, doesn't it? Here is what Elijah was thinking. Here is why he went mount, down to Mount Sinai. I have been very jealous, he says, for the Lord God of armies. And there it is. You know, if he had just said Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, you know, we would have said, well, the covenant name, God writing his, his name upon the hearts of men and women. But Elijah adds to it the word for armies. That's only the second time in the whole Bible that that name appears. The Lord God of armies. You see, Elijah felt, brothers and sisters, that God should take Israel by the scruff of their neck, shake the life out of them, and wake them up to, to see that they have to obey the truth. But what good is that, brothers and sisters, without the heart? What good is, is, is shaking people and forcing them to do what God wants if they're not doing it with their whole heart. What good is it? It's not worth anything. You know, God will never, brothers and sisters, force his covenant or his ways upon any of us. It is neither his will, nor is it his method. 
John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. It's not that. And we know what happened here at Sinai. In verse 11, Elijah was made to feel the, the sting of the, the power that he'd hoped God would unleash upon Israel. And he would have been terrified. Go forth and, and stand upon the mount, says verse 11. And the glory of Yahweh was revealed to him in wind, earthquake, and fire. You know, Elijah would have been absolutely terrified as he, as he felt the effects of all of those things. The earthquake, the wind, the fire. You know, there, there's nothing at Sinai, brothers and sisters, really, that's combustible. You can't burn anything. It's solid granite. But, but fire burnt that granite as though it was timber. And Elijah would feel the searing heat. And he went back into the cave. But you notice what it says there, in, in both in verse 11 and in verse 12. It says, God was not in those things. God was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire. In other words, God doesn't change you or me, brothers and sisters, by dramatics, by miracles. All that miracles can do is, is tell you that you're in the presence of divinity, but that's, that's all they can do. He uses a different method. He was not in any of those things. He changes us by another method, and that method is there at the end of verse 12. After the fire, a still, small voice. And it's that voice, we know, that gets Elijah out into the open. It's that voice that gets him to see what his problem was. A thin, crushed voice is what the Hebrew is. It's that which changes us. The unobtrusive influence of the daily readings. The humble and, and simple principles that are put forward by a brother at the Bible class. When we go home and we think about those things and we meditate upon them, it's, it's those things that change us. Not the dramatics, not the earthquake, wind, and fire. But what fixes the heart, brothers and sisters, is the still, small voice. Getting to the heart of the issue. That's what Elijah had to learn. And when Elijah saw that, he was ashamed. You know, he, he wraps his face, says verse 13, in his mantle. Now, the mantle was a symbol of the prophetic office. He's ashamed of it because he realizes now that, that that still small voice that he heard there from the angel was nothing like what he had been doing in Israel. And it was the voice, brothers and sisters, that got him out in the open. It was the voice, the gentle whisper, as the Hebrew has it. It's the gentle whisper of God's word that perfects us, that changes us, that got Elijah out of that cave and made him realize that that is what God uses to save men and women. He had gone down to Sinai to, to bring judgment upon Israel. That, look, if, if, if they're not going to do this willingly, then you should force it upon them. God says, no, I use a different method. I use the still, small voice, which gets to the heart of the issue. There's a subtle difference here in the record in verse 13. You see, what the angel does is repeats the same question as verse 9. You know, in verse 9, the word of the Lord came unto him. What are you doing here, Elijah? But in verse 13, the question comes again from God, but with a difference. And note that difference. Verse 9 said, the word of the Lord came. But in verse 13, there came, at the end of the verse, a voice 
unto him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he's absolutely shaken. And he repeats his prepared statement in verse 14. And I think he would have done so this time with a little bit less zeal and a little bit less fervor. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. It would have been said with with much less gusto as verse 10. And the angel doesn't even answer him. The angel says in verse, verse 15, you go back on your way. You go back on your way practice the spirit and the power of that voice. Elijah, I want you to return to Israel and practice a different spirit. Not a spirit that wants to call down fire from heaven, but my voice, a still small voice. Rotherham has the voice of a gentle whisper and speak to the hearts of your brothers and sisters. That's what converts us. That's what changes us. It's the goodness of God, says the Apostle Paul, that leads us to repentance. Not law driving us to obedience, but the goodness of God, Romans 2 verse 4, that leads us to repentance. You know, what is it that's more useful? Do this or I'll belt you. Or, you know, we choose this principle, brother, because this is what happens. Here's an example from the Bible, brothers and sisters, or here's an example, young person, of, of, of why we do what we do. This is why this is the best course of action. And we entreat and we appeal based on that. We get to the heart of the matter. Elijah, I've got 7,000 in Israel that desperately need your input. They could really use this counsel, the voice of God to save. You know, Elijah, brothers and sisters, never really did exercise that during his lifetime. He struggled with that, even after this point. But we know one day, Elijah will. And how do we know that? Let's come to the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. Here is the still, small voice. Now being practiced by Elijah. He's now learned from his experience at Mount Sinai, what it is that changes the hearts of men and women. Not the earthquake, not the dramatics, but the still, small voice. Let's just read this carefully. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 4. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and the judgments. Behold, I send you Elijah. Why send us Elijah to remember Moses? Why not send Moses? Wouldn't it be better? That's the one he's talking about. Well, for this reason, brothers and sisters, Elijah is far better educated. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant. He had gone to Sinai to stand in Moses' shoes. And God showed him what really changes the hearts of men and women. What what the law was really about. What God was driving at the spirit of the still, small voice. And so he doesn't send them Moses when he goes back again to to gather the Jews out of all lands in, in, in the few coming years. Who does he send? He sends Elijah. Because here is the man who now understands what really changes the hearts 
of men and women. And this is why John the Baptist was sent, to speak to their hearts. It was the still, small voice of God's word. Now, the other interesting thing about this, this passage here is that there are two key words in verses 5 and 6, and we have them highlighted here on the, the screen for you. He says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And the two words that stand up there like monuments on the earth are before and lest. You know, Elijah went down to Sinai to procure a curse upon Israel, to bring that curse upon them because of their disobedience to God's law. And Paul in Romans 11 picked that up and he said, What ye not what the scripture saith of Elijah, how he went to make intercession against Israel. What's he going to do in the future? God sends Elijah to Israel to prevent it, to prevent that curse. He went to Sinai to bring the curse. In the future, Elijah will come and he'll try to prevent it. And he will. All Israel will be saved. Despite a few rebels in the wilderness, Elijah will speak to their hearts. How ironic that he was the one who went down to Sinai to bring the curse. The last words of the Old Testament say, I'm sending Elijah back, not Moses. I'm sending Elijah back to prevent the curse. Now, how is Elijah going to do that? Well, he's going to speak to their hearts, isn't he? You know, imagine Elijah leading, leading that nation back as they, they go up into the Judean hills to meet their Messiah. With, with all the eloquence that you know a man like Elijah could bring to bear, to talk about the goodness of God that, that leads people to repentance. He says, I want to tell you, my people, about the law of Moses. I'm going to tell you. Not Moses. I'm going to tell you because I'm now equipped. Because I understand really what the Spirit of the truth is all about. It's, it's talking to people. It's appealing to them. It's speaking to their hearts. And that's what motivates them to change. The goodness of God that leads men and women to repentance. You know, what is it that gets you to break an old habit in your life, brothers and sisters? Is it when somebody reads you the riot act? I mean, that might get your attention. Is it when somebody gives you a lecture? Or is it when you think about all the things that God's done for you? And you think about how good he's been to you, how he sent his angel to, to guide your life. And you think about all the things that he's given you that you don't deserve. Isn't, isn't it that which changes you and makes you better? And that's what Elijah is going to do. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he had gone to Sinai down there to bring it. So all that was revealed to Elijah, as we saw in 1 Kings 19, by the voice. It was the voice that drew him out into the open. It was the voice that let him move out of that cave and, and wrap his face in his mantle because he knew he could see the point that God was getting at. It was the voice. And you know, when John the Baptist's voice sounded in the wilderness, brothers and sisters, the record of Matthew chapter 3 says, and all Judea went out to hear him. He, they were drawn inexorably to that man. They came from from Judea. They came from Galilee. They came from beyond Jordan. They all went out to hear him. It was the voice that drew them, the golden voice that drew them, just like, like bees on honey. Now, where is the great prophecy 
in your Bible about John the Baptist and the voice. Of course, it's, it's Isaiah 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Here it was, a voice in the wilderness. And of course, where did Elijah hear it? It was at the very apex of the, the wilderness in, in Mount Sinai. Here is the voice. Of course, John had quoted this, didn't he, about his own work. He said, I'm the voice. They said, who are you, John? And he quoted the 40th chapter of Isaiah to say, I'm the voice. Now, what kind of voice was it? Was it the voice that Elijah went to Sinai with? Well, verse 1 says, comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people. Here's the voice. Elijah didn't go to Sinai to say, comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people. But this is what the voice will do. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Now, if you have a margin, the margin of the, the authorized version says, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Getting to their hearts, speaking to them in, in comfortable words, just like you do in a thin, crushed voice, which is, is the, the Hebrew meaning of that voice at Sinai. It's a thin, crushed voice. That's how you change men and women. That's how you change hearts. This is what John the Baptist's coming, brothers and sisters, was all about. But where is the voice heard? Where do we hear that voice? Do we hear it out on the streets here today? Where is the voice heard? Well, Hosea said, I will allure her and bring her where? Into the wilderness. And I'll speak to her heart, which is the same expression in the Hebrew as Isaiah 40. Now, Hosea 2 is all about Gomer, you know, the, the unfaithful wife of Hosea, who's really a symbol, isn't she, of wayward Israel. And how did Hosea get her to come back? It wasn't by reading her the right act. It was by alluring her and speaking to her heart. The persuasive voice of God is what changed Gomer. And that voice was heard where? It was heard in the wilderness. We've got to get out into the wilderness, brothers and sisters, if we want to hear the voice of God. God or Hosea took Gomer, or God took Gomer, but he did it through Hosea, took Gomer out into the wilderness where she had nothing. No distractions, no cell phones, no Wi-Fi, none of that. And when she was out there isolated and alone, God was able to speak to her. And that's the great message of John the Baptist's life. That is the point of these studies. We've got to get out into the wilderness, brothers and sisters, if we're ever going to hear the voice of God. Because it's not heard anywhere else. You know, we can't escape our society, can we? You know, we, we're, we're all like rats caught up in a trap. But unless we can create within our minds a wilderness atmosphere, then we can never hear God speaking to our hearts. But hear it, we must. And Gomer stood in the wilderness where she had nothing. And God was able to get through to her. That illegitimate, wicked woman, God was able to get through to her by speaking to her heart in the wilderness. And that's why John is in the wilderness. That's why he wore a camel skin. That's why he ate grasshoppers, because he's telling us, clear your mind, come out here and listen to the whisper. 
It's only in the wilderness where the voice of God can be heard. Simplify our lives. Narrow down your influences and open the word in peace and in quiet. You know, many, many years ago at Shippensburg Bible School, Brother John Martin was there. And after the class, a bunch of us young guys went up to him and and we said, you know, Brother John, you know, where do you find all these amazing points that you're sharing in your classes? And he said, boys, they're not down at the mall. Well, this is back when we had malls in the late 90s. They're not down at the mall. He said, they're in the wilderness. That's where you find the voice of God. You'll never hear him in the hustle bustle of this world. You have to go out into a wilderness. And when we get out into a wilderness where there's nothing, it's remarkable when you get out there how clear God's voice is. And it's comfortable words. It's soothing words. It's not the, the gong of this world. It's soothing. It's peaceful. It filters the heart. And when there's no incessant dinging, it's absorbed. And they said to John, who are you? And he said, well, I'm the voice. In the wilderness, prepare ye the way of Yahweh. If the people wanted to hear John, where did they have to go? They had to go out into the wilderness. John wasn't in the Judean hills going shopping. He wasn't mingling on Mount Gerizim with the Samaritans. He was in the wilderness. And if they wanted to hear that whisper, they had to go out and listen to him. I'll just come back a few pages to, to Isaiah 32 while we're in Isaiah here. This is the same sort of, of idea about getting out into the wilderness, getting away from society. There is the, the great lesson of this man's life. Verse 13 of Isaiah 32. Upon the land of my people shall come up thorns and briars, yea, upon all the houses of joy in the joyous city, because the palaces shall be forsaken. This, this 14th verse is talking about the cities of our present world. Okay, New York, Philadelphia, this is what's about to happen. The cities will be forsaken. The multitude of the city shall be left. The forts and the towers shall be for dens forever, a joy of wild asses, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness become a fruitful field. You know, that verse isn't just saying that one day God's going to change this world to be an agricultural society, whereas now it's an urban one. You know, it's saying that people that live in these concrete jungles, like New York, like Philadelphia, where the whisper of God's word today is never picked up, one day God will shake this world, brothers and sisters, with an earthquake. You know, they say in that 14th verse there that you find every single Hebrew word for a city that you can have. Every single word for a city or a tower is in that 14th verse. Every conceivable thing you can think of when you think about a city is there in that 14th verse. But what's it going to be soon? It's going to be a joy of wild asses. They're all going to be empty. When Zechariah 14, when the earthquake of that chapter happens, there is not going to be a city on this earth left standing. And that's not my opinion. That's the opinion of seismologists in Australia. They have said that. 
people that don't believe the Bible have looked at the earthquake of Zechariah 14 and said, if that happens, there will not be a city on this earth left standing. Well, what, what's it going to be? What are people going to do when their cities are gone? Well, verse 15 says they're going to go out into the wilderness. They're going to go out where God's spirit has been poured upon high. And the wilderness will become a fruitful field. And when that earthquake levels every city in this world and it becomes a joy of wild asses, People will drag themselves and they'll have their families and their children and they will go out into the wilderness where there's nothing. And there, God will speak to their hearts. That was why John the Baptist was sent, to get people out of this world where there's nothing. And there he will speak to our heart. Now, what generation that has ever lived in human history has got to hear this lesson more than ours? There are so many distractions today the attention span of people is only until they hear the next ding. We've got to get out of that. We've got to create a wilderness atmosphere in our minds. Close the door. Turn the Wi-Fi off. And open this book and allow God to speak to our hearts. Now, we'll leave Isaiah 40 for now. But in each session this afternoon, we're going to have to come back here. Because this is John's chapter, all the way back in the prophecy of Isaiah. I'd like to just end this first session where we, we started off, coming back to Luke chapter 1 and verse 16. So the spirit and power of Elijah was the, the still small voice of Yahweh to save men and women, to, to speak to their hearts. Isaiah picked that up beautifully in chapter 40. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of Yahweh. At the end of his life, and on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah learned that. And now John is going to go forward in front of us in our studies over the next two days and show us that still small voice. Luke chapter 1 and verse 16. And many, speaking of what John would accomplish, many will he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Let's just uh, solidify the Elijah-John connection, because this, this is incredible. Both men came at a time of extreme wickedness, a time when the fathers had, had filled up the measure of their iniquity. Ahab's father means to fill up. Amra means to fill up, and Ahab means his father's brother. So they had filled up the measure of their fathers. So had the men of Israel when John came. Both men, as we'll see, were dressed in nature. Very, very similar in appearance. It was Elijah raced down the, the valley of Jezreel in front of Ahab, believing Ahab had been converted. So John raced before the royal majesty of the kingdom, our Lord Jesus Christ. Elijah had to give way to the gentler Elisha. And John, as we'll see, had to decrease. He had to stand outside, as John chapter 3 uses the description. He had to stand outside as he made way for the greater Jesus. Elisha means the salvation of God. Jesus means the salvation of God. They had very similar names. And the mantle, as we'll see, changed at exactly the same location. Elijah's career 
you could say as an effective career, was brought to an end when he dared to denounce the unholy alliance of Ahab and Jezebel. And John was brought tragically to death. As we'll see in our exhortation, God willing, on Sunday, when he dared to denounce the unholy alliance, the unholy marriage of Herod to Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. You imagine just you know, doing that with some sort of fictional book. You know, just taking bits and pieces of it and, and lining it all up. This is the word of God. He will go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. You know, it's a remarkable parallel, but, but it's also a really interesting difference because verse 16 here says, and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. You know, Elijah turned nobody to the Lord their God. I mean, true, he, he left an indelible impression upon that nation. He shook them to their foundations. They didn't know what hit them. But it really, apart from the widow of Zarephath, who wasn't even a Jew, Elijah turned nobody to the Lord their God. Of John here, it said in verse 16 that he would turn many, he would turn many to the Lord their God. So none in the first instance, when Elijah came the first time, Many, in the second instance, when John was sent at the first advent, and then Ezekiel 20 and Malachi 4 say that Elijah shall turn the hearts of the fathers to their children when he's sent before the Lord at his second advent. And what would he do? He would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Now, now what's that saying? Well, the heart of the fathers there is the fathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if they were around today... And if they were around in Christ's day and they looked at their children, they would be ashamed. When Abraham sees that disgusting display at the Western Wall of, of an open show of righteousness, he would be totally ashamed of his children. But what Elijah and what John would do is he would turn the heart of Abraham to his children. And in turn, the heart of the children who really don't understand their fathers... They don't really know what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob taught. If they did, they would accept the Lord Jesus Christ. The heart of the children will look up to their fathers. They will go out to their fathers. As Luke says, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. They'll see that their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were wise. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And one day... They will see that. Well, it's John now who's going to be sent forth to make that happen, that the heart of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will, will be proud of his children. And the heart of the children will look with honor upon their father and see that in being justified by faith, he was wise. That is the work that John is now going to do. And he said, don't you tell me you've got Abraham as your father. You bring forth fruits, meat for repentance like he did. That's exactly what John is going to do to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And, and I don't know, brothers and sisters, of, a, of another study that is as relevant to us. We're on the edge of the return of Christ. We're about to gaze into the blue eyes of divinity very shortly. And John was sent right on the very edge of the Lord's appearing to get the people ready. For his coming. The disadvantage for you and I is, is that we don't have a John to, to walk in that door. 
and to tell us he's coming. So what we've got to do is we've got to tell ourselves. We've got to tell ourselves he's coming, he's coming. And we've got to be ready for it. So what are we going to do? Well, we're not going to learn really many new lessons in this study. I just want you to learn one. And it might be the most difficult of all ages to learn it, but learn it we must. And that is we have to learn to listen to God's voice. And in order to do that, in order to allow it to penetrate our hearts, we have to make, brothers and sisters, the circumstances of our lives conducive to it, conducive to hearing the voice. To go out there where there's nothing, to turn the Wi-Fi off, or, or even better, get it out of our house so that we have a calm and quiet atmosphere in which to, to give ourselves to this book and allow his voice to speak to our hearts. That is the great lesson of John the Baptist's life, and it's really the only one. Allowing that voice to speak to our hearts and, and making our lives conducive so that we can hear it and hear it very, very clearly. You know, God doesn't ask us to leave house and home. He doesn't ask us to, to go out and, and to, to buy a camel skin and live like John did. But what he is saying in that man is that we've got to get out of this world. We've got to leave our environment and listen to the voice of Yahweh, which will make ready a people prepared for their God. Well, the good news is, brothers and sisters, there's still time. It's not too late. And to that end, this weekend, we have before us the example of he who is the greatest prophet born among women. And in stark reality, he's going to lay us open. He's now going to be brought forth before us as we see his spirit and power, the voice in the wilderness, which will speak to our hearts. So we pass between the, the pages of Malachi to Matthew. There's 400 years of silence that is broken. And Luke introduces John the Baptist in a very simple way. He said there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And John, of course, is, is a derivation of that beautiful Hebrew name, Yohanan, the grace of the Lord. A man sent from God, whose name was John. And God was now about to speak again. You know, there were many prophets that were sent. But here is a prophet that we're told was specifically sent from the presence of God himself. He was a product of the Spirit. If we turn over to John chapter 5, we have the Lord Jesus Christ testimony to John. And what he was sent to do. In John chapter 5, in verse 35, and speaking about John the Baptist, it says that he was a burning and a shining light. And you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Previously, John had said in John chapter 1 about John the Baptist, he was not that light. Now, when that phrase is used in John 1 and verse 8, the Greek word is phos. You're like phosphorus, glowing in the dark, a permanent light. John was not that permanent light. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. But what was John? 
Well, Jesus says he was a burning and a shining lamp. And the Greek word that's used there is, is a portable hand lamp. You know, it's a, it's a lamp that you put a little bit of oil in and it would light up and would sort of flare up your path for a short time and then it would go out. He was a burning and a shining portable hand lamp, said Jesus. You had to be quick because the light was about to go out. And once it had gone out, you'd lost your opportunity. He was a burning and a shining portable hand lamp. As we said, one of the drawbacks to living today is we're not going to get a John the Baptist to warn us about the Lord's coming. And so what we need are brethren who can stand up and illuminate our path, who can flare up our path for a moment to, to show us what we are for a moment of time until that permanent foss arrives from which nobody can be extricated, our Lord Jesus Christ. And there he was, John giving men just a, a moment of time to see themselves for what they truly were until the Lord Jesus Christ came, the great light, which would never go out. They needed it at that time, and, and boy, do we need that today. We need that light flaring up in our path so that brothers and sisters can set their sails for the kingdom of God. And they really needed it because Micah had said this. He said, the sun will go down over the prophets. The seers will be ashamed. There is no answer from God, said Micah. And those words were fulfilled when the last prophet, Malachi, set down his pen. There was darkness over the land. The Greeks came in. The Persians came in. There was no answer from God. But look at the next verse. But truly, I am full of the power by the Spirit of Yahweh. And that 400-year darkness was now about to be dispelled by one who came in the Spirit and the power of Elijah, which was the spirit and power of his God, to dispel that 400-year period of darkness. He was a man for his time. And here he comes now in the person of John. But boy, was the darkness thick that John had to dissipate. He came into a world that was seething. Jewish nationalism seethed and fermented as it, as it languished beneath the, the iron yoke of Rome. The nation, God's ecclesia in the wilderness, as they were once known, is now going to be divided into many classes. The darkness indeed was thick. Many people had no hope. Many people had no ambition. It was a dark, dark period in the nation's history. There was no middle class at all when John came on the scene. You were either very rich or very poor. And the poor would have found it very, very hard to find any sense of hope, to find any sense of, of, of optimism in life. There was no middle class. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus was a perfect depiction of life at that time. And Jewish nationalism, which really could never be quelled, seethed and fermented as it tried to throw off the iron yoke of Rome, looking for anything that might give them some sense of hope in life. 
And so God's people, brothers and sisters, were divided into many classes. And this is who John came to. There were the Pharisees, the clergy of the day, who were zealous of tradition over and above the word of God. Proud and arrogant. They were, they were too proud to even submit to the iron yoke of Rome. There were the Sadducees, who don't believe in angels, spirit, or resurrection, who possessed for this, for this time the office of the priesthood, and as such had the key to the temple treasury chest. People who live for this life, and based upon how you did in business, that to them was a measure of how God blessed you. They were the scribes and the lawyers, people who used the Bible to legislate against the poor on behalf of the rich. There were the zealots, hot-headed fanatics, the Sakari, as they were later known, who didn't think anything to, to slit a throat, to do anything they tried to get rid of the Roman overlord. There were the Herodians, people whose policy was, well, if you can't beat them, join them, who took off the plain robe of a scribe to wear the purple of Herod's court. To all those classes, brothers and sisters, John the Baptist was sent. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, who would flare up and show men for a moment what they truly were and dispel that darkness so that men could be ready for the Lord's coming. And you know, amidst all of that chaos, there was still a flickering expectancy of Messiah among the old people, the Zechariases and the Elizabeths, people who could remember better days, who saw nothing in the, the present generation and just yearned within their hearts for, for Messiah who was to come. That was the world with all of its class distinctions that John came. It desperately needed this, this light. You know, on other occasions, God might not have done this. He might have chosen a different method. But so great was the need. He, he introduced into the nation this, this stark aberration to wake people up. And that's something that we need too, isn't it, brothers and sisters? You know, sometimes we have to look at a character like John to, to see the issues of life as, as clear as they are because it's easy to forget about them and, the, and the, the hubbub of this society. People had become apathetic. People had become lethargic. You know, I don't know what it's like here, but the, the city where I come from, there are 200 Christadelphians of all makes and models. And my, my worry is, is I, I don't see, I think, the enthusiasm that we should be having for the return of Christ. You know, we're buying and we're selling and we're, we're building and we're planting and we're consumed with all those things. And, and, and we need a character like John, don't we, to, to sort of shake us up, to, to get us out of our, our lethargy and to bring us back to, to some sort of, of an equilibrium. Now, although these words that I'm about to quote to you don't pertain to John the Baptist, they fit his life and his, his purpose absolutely beautifully. Remember we said John means the grace of the Lord. Paul to Titus in his second chapter. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation 
hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And there he was, the grace of God hath appeared, teaching us that we should deny worldly lusts. John didn't have any possessions. You know, the camel skin doesn't have to be dry cleaned too often. Grasshoppers don't need much cooking. <laughs> denying ungodliness, denying worldly lust, until the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and those words really could form a caption, couldn't they, over the top of John's life. And so the lamp was lit. The little portable hand lamp was lit in Luke chapter 1. So let's come back to Luke chapter 1. And in order that we might not miss the point that the light was needed, Luke is going to tell this most excellent Theophilus the background into which he came. Luke chapter 1 in verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. Herod. Now, who was he? Well, Herod is a title. It means heroic. And he was there as a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Because many years earlier, Moses had told them that if they did not keep the words of this law, strangers would rule over him. Well, Herod was an Edomite. You can't get a greater stranger to a Jew than an Edomite. He was a man who was absolutely devoid of any morality at all. He married ten times. He was a product of his age. He didn't, he didn't think, think twice to murder the, the babies in, in Bethlehem. He was a man who was known as Herod the Great. And he was great in everything that this world calls great. He ruled over Judea with an iron fist for nearly 40 years. And he had temporarily pacified the Jews because he built for them a temple which had gained for them some favor. I mean, Herod understood that if you're ever going to control a people like the Jews, you've got to throw them a bone every now and then. And so he built them a temple, which Jesus said was 46 years in building. You know, it took another 20 years to finish that temple. So how long was it in building? 66 years. And it got built just in time for the Romans to knock it down. But he was a man who was great in everything that men call great. Well, you know, at that same time, in verse 15 of Luke chapter 1, there was another man who rose up who was great. For he shall be great, verse 15, in the sight of the Lord and in nobody else's sight. So here we have Herod the Great, who the world would admire, who the world would vote for, who was great in everything that men call great. But God voted for John the Baptist. He will be great, says verse 15, in the sight of the Lord. And there's the contrast. Herod the Great and a man great in the sight of the Lord. Well, coming back to verse 5, Luke tells us that this boy would be the son of Zechariah. Now, 
Everything that Luke tells us here is is of great significance. You know that Luke is very detail-oriented in both his gospel and in the Acts. And he wants to tell us all about this little family, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were the parents of our John the Baptist. So Zechariah was married to Elizabeth. Now, if we look at the meanings of those names, we have Zechariah, Yah hath remembered. Elizabeth means the oath of ale. And John, the mercy of God, you you look over at verse 72 of this same chapter, there is an obvious play upon the names of this family. In the song of Zechariah, which we won't have time to get to, he said this, that God would perform the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. There is an obvious play you can see there upon the names of this family. Zacharias, Yah hath remembered. Elizabeth, the oath of ale. John, the mercy of God. Now just tuck those meanings away in your mind because they'll come back up just shortly in, in a second. Now this Zacharias, we're told in verse 5, was of the course of Abiah. Now the courses go back to David. You know, David, as the priesthood expanded, the, as, as, sorry, as the nation expanded, the priesthood, by necessity, also had to expand. And so he divided the priesthood, didn't he, into 24 courses. And one of those courses was the course of Abiah. The course of Abiah, if we go back to 1 Chronicles 24 and verse 10. That's the course that Zechariah is a member of. And when we look at which course it was, the course of Abiah in the book of Chronicles happens to be the eighth course. The eighth course, the number of a new beginning. And wasn't that John as he came into the land of Judea? He was a new beginning in every sense of the word. It was the eighth course, and of course you'll know that it was on the eighth day, wasn't it, that that rite of circumcision was performed upon a Jewish boy. And circumcision primarily taught, didn't it, the cutting off of the flesh and that the children of promise would not be produced by natural means, but rather by spiritual means. Because when God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, he could not have a child. But it's reminded Abraham of the fact that the child of promise that was to come would be God's son. And Luke again, in the Acts of the Apostles, puts this together so wonderfully. He says, he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begat Isaac. Now, many years of time, of course, came between those two things. But circumcision being performed on the eighth day, and the course of Abiah being the eighth course, it spoke about God's workings amongst men. It was God working in the lives of men. And John here, of course, is not begotten in the same way that Jesus was. But of course, as we'll see shortly, if, if God had not intervened, in the case of these two old people, John the Baptist would never have seen the light of day. It was the eighth course, speaking of that, that new beginning connected with, with circumcision. Now, what about his mom? That was his dad. That's a pretty special heritage he has. What about his mom? Well, she's even greater because it says there in verse 5 that she was of the daughters of Aaron. 
Now that's impressive. She's not just a Levite. She's of the daughters of Aaron. And in fact, Elishaba, Elizabeth is Elishaba in Hebrew. Elishaba was the name of Aaron's wife. So this child's got a pretty nice heritage. His qualifications for priesthood, John the Baptist, were absolutely impeccable. He's got a mother and a father, both, who were in the priestly line. You know, a mother who, who comes from the family of Aaron. Why is he down in the wilderness wearing a camel skin? You know, how odd it is that, that a man with those bloodlines is down in the wilderness of Judea, not a high priest, but wearing a camel skin and not garments for glory and beauty. So there's, there's some, some interesting things about John that we need to unearth here. So just tuck that away too. Remember the meanings of the names. And then also remember that this is a boy who has got impeccable qualifications for priesthood. I mean, qualities, of, you know, qualifications that really are par excellence. I mean, there was not even the high priests themselves at this time would have had those qualifications. But John does, and we'll see why shortly. But this old couple, brothers and sisters, had a problem. And, you know, we, we've all got a cross to bear, don't we, of some kind. You know, we've all got an old habit. We've all got a, a trial that really has been eating at us sometimes for like 20 years. And, and this was theirs in, in verse 7. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they both were now well stricken in years. She was barren. And, and so notorious was this barrenness that if you just skip over to verse 36... In verse 36, she was actually given a title in the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now, in the Greek, it's the barren one. She's the barren one, tragically. And, and I don't know if, if people would have said that out of any disrespect or, or trying to, to belittle her, but, you know, this, this, here's a family whose bloodlines are so pure that you know, this poor old lady became known as, as the barren one, and it was sort of just a, a tragedy to look at this family with, with all of these great bloodlines, and yet you, you see that they can't have a child. What a struggle that must have been for them. You know, especially in Israel where it was a joy to have children because they all wanted to be the one to, to bear that Messiah who would come. But, but what was their attitude? You know, attitude is, 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 is a lot in life. Attitude is a lot. Well, here's their attitude. If you come back to, to verse 6, you know, it's, it's easy to give up. It's easy to ask God, well, why is this happening to me? And they were both righteous. Now, notice this, verse 6, before God. Now, that means it's genuine righteousness. They're righteous not before other people. You know, we sometimes think we're righteous because we do things in front of other people. What's ma what matters is, is that we do those things in front of God. Well, they were righteous before God. It was genuine. And they continued to worship and walk in all the commandments and the ordinances of the law and were blameless. So the trial didn't produce any bitterness in them, did it? They continued. If anything, they were more steadfast in the face of that trial. Righteous before God and were blameless. Think about the, the incredible 
a compliment that's given there by Luke. And the word blameless doesn't mean that they were without sin, but of course, it meant that under the law, they would have made all the offerings. They were at meeting every week. They were at Bible class every week. When the ecclesia needed a job, they were there. They walked in all the commandments, blameless. And they prayed about it. They prayed about that problem. And they're, who knows how old? They're well stricken in years. Now, how old that is in verse 7, I don't know. But they kept on praying for a child. They didn't stop as old as they were. They kept on praying. Look at verse 13. Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard. Now, the word prayer there is desis, D-E-E-S-I-S. It means a specific petition. It wasn't just any sort of prayer. It was a specific petition that they made. And, And I'd make the suggestion to you that despite the age of this old couple, they are still making a specific petition for a boy. The word prayer there means something specific. It's not a general word, but something specific. As old as they were, they kept on praying for a child. Now just picture an older couple who doesn't have children. They're praying day in and day out for a child. Now, now look at that face. You know, how often do we, do we just give up when problems arise? You know, we, we need help or the, the ecclesia needs help. Maybe we get together and we have a special prayer. And, and the first sign of difficulty, you see people in the meeting wanting to give up. This man is still praying and asking God to do it despite his age. Now, was he rewarded by God? Was he ever? Look at verse 8. It came to pass while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course. According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple before in, into the temple of the Lord. His lot. Now, this is where you kind of need to, to look at how that worked in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, because you won't exactly find them doing it this way in the law. The priesthood had changed a little bit. But the great honor of any any member of that family, the great honor was to burn incense in that holy place. That was what they all strived to do. And because there were so many people at that time that wanted to do it, they drew lots for it. And when your name came out, you burned incense on that one day, and then after that, your name was thrown out because you had had your privilege. You only got it one time in your whole life to go in there and burn incense. And on the one day that Zacharias would ever get that privilege to go in there and burn incense, there is Gabriel standing on the right side of the altar. He's been praying all of his life for a child. And the one time his name comes out of the hat, to use a modern expression, the one time his name comes out of the hat and says, okay, it's your turn, His only chance to do it, his whole life, he walks in, there's Gabriel standing on the right side of the altar. Does God answer prayer in remarkable ways? Well, he went in there, and there was El Gibor. Not just any angel, but Gabriel. 
Edersheim, who was a, a Jew who became a Christian, wrote very wonderfully about the, the customs of the temple in the days of Christ. And you see that last phrase there, for the first time in his life and for the last, this service would devolve upon him. That's the only time he ever would have gone in there to burn incense. His name came up that day. And there is Gabriel listening to that prayer and watching that man as he burns incense. And now he is going to appear to him with this great message. Now, where did Gabriel last appear in our Bibles? Well, he's here in Luke chapter 1. Well, the last time he appeared in our Bibles was Daniel chapter 9, where he appeared to Daniel to, to give him the prophecy of the, the 70 weeks. Now, I told you to remember the meanings of, of the names. But Daniel, in his prayer, you'll find these three things. He first asked for God to remember that the 70 years of captivity have come to an end. In verse 4, he appeals for mercy. And he explains in verse 11 that the reason why they've suffered 70 years of captivity is because they hadn't followed the oath written in the law of Moses. Zacharias, Yahweh hath remembered. John, the grace of God. Elizabeth, the oath of Ale. And this, this great angel now spans those two bookends. He appeared in Daniel chapter 9, 500 years earlier to Daniel, to an aged man who had been praying. And then he reappears in Luke chapter 1 to an aged man who had been praying. And you see all of those details all matched up. And Gabriel was listening to that man, and now he's listening to this man. To show the nation mercy, God was now going to act in response to this great prayer. And let, let that be an encouragement to us, brothers and sisters. You know, how many years Zechariah had been praying, we don't know. But God finally responded. We've got to learn faith, and we've got to learn patience when we come before God and ask what we need. So he's standing there, we come back to Luke chapter 1, there in verse 11, on the right side of the altar of incense. The right side. Now, of course, most of us would be right-handed, wouldn't we? And, and the right hand, of course, is that hand which is the most dexterous. Now, it matters not with God, be it right hand or left. But you know what we read of in the Psalms is the saving power of God's right hand. My right, your left. It's a symbol of power and action. So he's, a, he's not on the left side of the altar, is he? He's on the right side because he's now going to act and give this old couple a boy who would be the forerunner of their Messiah. The right side of the altar. Just take down these references about the right hand. Psalm 20, verse 6, and Psalm 60, verse 5. And those two references are all about the saving strength of God's right hand and that's the saving strength that's now going to be manifested as he stands there this mighty angel on the right hand of the altar of incense you know the altar of incense being used here in connection with Zechariah is is very interesting I'd like to just turn this one up in Exodus chapter 30 just come back with me to Exodus chapter 30 because the altar of incense was a very unique item in the holy place. It's described in terms of a house. The altar of incense 
was a little house in the holy place. And there in that holy place was a replica of every house in Israel. Now just look quickly at Exodus 30 and verse 3. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof and the sides thereof round about. Exodus 30, verse 3. Now, if you have a margin, the margin of my Bible for top is roof. And the margin for sides is walls. So the altar of incense is described in terms of a house. It's got a roof and it's got walls. Now, the altar of incense was a little box, like, like not big at all. But it's got a roof and it's got walls. So what's that saying? It's saying that Every house in Israel ought to have been a house of prayer. Now you think about the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. What was it? It was a house of prayer. And there in the holy place was a replica of every house in Israel. It had a flat roof and it had walls. Deuteronomy 22, they had to construct their houses with a flat roof and walls. And so you think about that in terms of Zechariah in his house. Was it a house of prayer? Was it ever? And standing there on the right side of the altar of incense, what his house had been all of his life, now there is Gabriel to, to give him this wonderful and cheering news. Coming back to Luke chapter 1, he was told that his name was to be John, the grace of God. You know, Elijah had called for Yahweh Elohim of armies in 1 Kings 19, but Elijah was shown, no, that's not what spirit we need to have. We need this spirit. John appears, the grace of the Lord, which leads men to repentance. And he was to be the cause of great joy and gladness, says Luke 1 in verse 14. And many shall rejoice at his birth, because of course, this one was to signal the forerunner of the Messiah for which so many of them had been waiting. There would be joy and gladness, as, as there should be at the, at the birth of any child, especially this one. More on that phrase just in a moment. Now I ask you to remember the impeccable qualifications that John would have had for priesthood. And we get to that in verse 15, because this is what God said he's going to be. It says, he will be great in the sight of the Lord, Luke 1, 15, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. In other words, he's going to be a Nazarite. He will drink neither wine nor strong drink. Now, the Nazarite vow was really given just for one reason. So you see, God told Israel at Sinai, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. And then he gave a law which said it could never happen. Because unless you are of the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron, you never could be a priest. Well, how then could the words of Exodus 19 ever be fulfilled? You shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. That's where the Nazarite vow comes in. Because the Nazarite vow was the opportunity for anyone in Israel, either man or woman, for a given period to imitate the high priest. So the high priest was told not to drink wine. So the Nazarite wasn't to drink wine. The high priest was told never to touch a dead body. The Nazarite was told never to touch a dead body. As the, the high priest wore the, the great crown upon his head with, with the name of God uh, inscribed across it, 
So the Nazarite, when he grew his hair long, he would have worn it in a turban, in, the, in like sort of a turban, like what we see today, which was very similar in shape, as you can see, to the mitre of the high priest. He's going to be a Nazarite, but, but, but hang on a second. I thought John already had every qualification to be a priest. Why does John have to be a Nazarite? Nazarite, the Nazarite vow was for people who could never be priest. And yet the record says that he's going to be a Nazarite. Gabriel says, you know, from his mother's womb, he's got to be a Nazarite. Well, what's the reason for that? John had no reason to be a Nazarite. He's already in the priestly line. Well, who was greater, the Nazarite or the high priest? Interesting question. Who was greater? Got a 50% chance, I guess. The Nazarite. Why? Because why was the high priest there? The high priest was there by dint of birth, by a carnal commandment, as Paul says in Hebrews 7. Why is the Nazarite doing this? Because he wants to. Because he loves his God so much and reveres his God so much, he wants to be like his high priest so much that he says, I'm going to be a Nazarite because I want to be like my high priest. The high priest was just there by dint of birth. He had no choice. The Nazarite, in a very real sense, was greater than the high priest. The high priest was there by a carnal commandment, but the high priest was there, but the Nazarite, sorry, was there because he loved his God. He's got to be a Nazarite, says Gabriel. It's as though, brothers and sisters, the law is being set aside in this boy. You know, John has absolutely nothing to do with the law. Here is the spirit of the law, a separate one, as the word Nazarite means, a separate one in every sense of the word. And it's going to happen, says verse 15, from his mother's womb. Which again, that's a difference from the, the law too, because a Nazarite normally could pick how long he would be a Nazarite for. You could do it for a week, you could do it for a month, you could do it for a year. But Gabriel says, no, he's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to be a separate one from his birth. This is my work. I mean, how much longer do you think Zacharias and Elizabeth were alive after this? I mean, probably not very long. They're old and well-stricken in years already. So who then was going to be his father? Well, it was going to be God. He was going to take over and be his father. And John was in the deserts for much of his early childhood. So who was his mentor? Who was his guide? But Yahweh. This child indeed was to be a product of his maker, a Nazarite, a separate, a separate one in every sense of the word. So Zacharias is informed by the angel that he's going to have a child. But poor old Zacharias. You know, his faith was there, wasn't it? You know, he was blameless according to the law. But, you know, like it is with, with us sometimes, brothers and sisters, you know, when God answers prayers in your life, you're, you're sometimes just so staggered and, and surprised you can't believe it. And that's what happens here with, with Zacharias. You, you stop thinking for a second. You know, we pray every day, don't we, that Christ is going to come. And, you know, when that knock comes on the door, 
you know, we, we might just be so, so overcome with the whole moment, we might not believe it. And the angel says, he's here. You're like, who? That's kind of what happens with, with Zacharias. It's, it's all his hope and it's all his aspirations, but momentarily he, he doesn't believe because the fullness of the, the expectation doesn't match the fullness of the realization. And so we read there in verse 18, Zechariah says to Gabriel, well, well, how shall I know this? You know, for I am old and, and, and my wife is well stricken in years. So he temporarily, doesn't he, loses a little bit of faith. You know, that question, that very same question there in verse 18, you might recall was asked by another faithful man. So faithful that he became known as the father of the faithful. Whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it. But in Abraham's case, it was, it was a question of faith. He was asking what the modus operandi was for how he would have a boy. And immediately, God showed Abraham the sacrifice. But Zechariah just temporarily loses heart. He's, he's so overwhelmed with the excitement of seeing Gabriel that it says that he doesn't believe. And so, what was his penalty? What did that lack of belief cost Zacharias. Well, verse 19 says, I am El Gibor that stands in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb. He struck dumb. Now, why would God strike a man like that dumb? It's interesting. He's, he's in the holy place. And, you know, normally when you, you came out of the holy place, everybody's standing outside waiting for Zacharias to come out. You know, when, when the priest came out, he would come out with the, the blessing, Yahweh, bless thee and keep thee. Yahweh, make his face to shine upon thee. And Zacharias comes out. He can't speak. It seems harsh. Why would he be struck dumb? For not believing, verse 19, these glad tidings. Let's come back to our chapter, Isaiah 40, because here it is. Glad tidings, where's that from? Isaiah chapter 40. This is the, the chapter of John that we have to keep coming back to to get our bearings. He struck dumb for not believing the glad tidings. Verse 9. We know these words so well, don't we, from the, the Messiah. Isaiah 40, verse 9. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. So what were they supposed to do here with the, the voice of the good tidings? They were to lift it up with strength. Be not afraid. But Zechariah doesn't believe the glad tidings. So what happens to his voice? He's struck dumb. You see, it's scriptural that it be so. The voice was, the, the tidings were supposed to be proclaimed in a loud voice. Zechariah doesn't believe the tidings, so he's struck dumb. But, but who's the voice of Isaiah chapter 40? Who's the voice in this chapter? Verse 3. It's the voice of his own boy. And whilst Zechariah may be 
temporarily struck dumb. The voice of his boy now comes reverberating out of that chapter. And so because these glad tidings are supposed to be spoken in a loud voice, Zacharias doesn't believe it, and he's struck dumb. But who is speaking loudly in this chapter? Well, it's the voice of his own boy. So he's struck dumb because the voice said, lift up your voice with strength. So let's just summarize this in terms of the the slide that we have before us. How do we know that Luke's mind is in Isaiah chapter 40? Well, firstly, we see Zacharias is, is struck dumb for not believing the glad tidings. And if we doubted that that's the answer, the context of this chapter is about the birth of John the Baptist and the sending forth of the voice. So that lets us know that we're on, we're on sure ground. Well, let's come back to Luke chapter 1 and see how Luke just picks this up so beautifully to show that his mind was right here in, in John's chapter, in Isaiah chapter 40. Because there are two other points that, that come up in this chapter that Luke is, is at pains to record. Mary, having been given her promise that she was to have the Messiah, it says there in verse 39 of Luke chapter 1, that Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah. Now, Luke could have easily told us what that city of Judah was, couldn't he? In Luke chapter 1 and verse 39, but he doesn't. It just says that Mary went into the hill country into a city of Judah. What does Isaiah 40 say? Get thee into the high mountain, the hill country. Say to the cities of Judah. She went into a city of Judah. Proclaim, behold your God. He's coming. The glad tidings that that God is interested in our affairs and he's about to send a voice to save us. Proclaim that with a loud voice. Zacharias is struck dumb for not believing it. Mary goes forth and proclaims it upon the hill country of Judah. But what about Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, the other character in this story? Verse 42 specifically notes, when her prayer of thanksgiving was expressed, and this we're told was a spirit-inspired prayer, it says that she spoke up with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women to Mary, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And look at all of Luke's allusions we have there to that grand chapter of Isaiah 40. So Zacharias lost heart momentarily for not believing the glad tidings, and he's, he's struck dumb. And you know, when Zacharias' mouth is finally opened at the, the birth of, of John the Baptist, there comes forward, in verse 67 of this chapter, one of the most remarkable and scintillating songs you've ever heard. You know, we had to eliminate that consideration because five sessions in an afternoon would be even harder than four. But if we had a, a number five, we, we definitely would have looked at that song. He, he, once he learns the lesson, he speaks one of the most glorious songs that you can read in your Bibles from verse 67 down to the end of this chapter. And so let's finish with verse 24. This remarkable, faithful couple is now told that they're going to, to have a child. So what does Elizabeth do? And after those days, Luke 1, verse 24, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Finally, here it is. All of their hopes and prayers. And she hid herself five 
months. What does John mean? It means the grace of God. And she hid herself five months to think about the grace of God. And the number five, brothers and sisters, everywhere in the Bible is the number of grace. You know, you, saw, you see it with Abraham and Sarah. You know, God adds the fifth consonant of his name, making it the fifth consonant of their name because they were heirs together of the grace of life. When Israel redeemed the unclean animals, they did so with the fifth. Part five is everywhere the number of grace. And so to think about her boy that was to be born, she, she went away and hid herself for five months to think about that. Where do you think she went? Well, I think she went into the wilderness. You know, she didn't go around saying, look at me, God has taken away my reproach. She didn't want to share that news with the world. She just wanted to share it with God. And so she went away, brothers and sisters, I think, into the wilderness. Like mother, like son. To allow the voice of God to, to speak to her heart. And you can just imagine, can't you, that, is that, that child formed in her womb. In the wilderness prepare ye the way of Yahweh. And make straight in the desert a highway for our God. She goes away into the wilderness to hear the voice. And in our next study, that's exactly where we're going to meet her son. Her son will be in the wilderness. And we'll look at one of the most thrilling studies that you can do in the scriptures. The day of John's showing unto Israel. When John was asked by a deputation of the Jews that were sent to him, who are you? It's interesting to, to see that the more John said, actually the less he said. The Jewish leaders asked, are you the Christ? His answer, I am not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet of Deuteronomy 18? No. Well, well, well then who are you? Nothing, just a voice. And the very fact that John saw himself as nothing, brothers and sisters, is what allowed God to make him a voice. See, if there's one thing that prevents God speaking through people, it's when we insist on speaking for ourselves. It's only when we're able to divest ourselves of self that God can take our mouth and, and use that mouth for his purpose. We don't need brothers and sisters who go around the ecclesia speaking their mind. What we need is brothers and sisters who are going to speak God's mind. And we can only do that, as John is going to show us, when we empty ourselves of our own thoughts that we might be filled with God's. I am not the Christ. I am not. No. Well, then who are you? 
just a voice. You know, it's interesting that uh, he of whom it was said that he's the greatest prophet born among women, we have just one verse of scripture that spans 30 years of his life. I'd like you to just focus on that verse of scripture now with me in Luke chapter 1 and at verse 80. You know, much like the testimony about our Lord Jesus Christ, we have just a glimpse of him there, don't we, in the temple, dazzling the, the doctors of the law. But although this one verse spans 30 years of John's life, it, it really fits his purpose absolutely beautifully. Luke 1, the very last verse, the child grew and waxed strong in spirit. His parents are probably have now passed off the scene and was in the deserts until the day of his showing unto Israel. And as, as we've been repeating throughout the classes, he's in the deserts. That's where God's voice can be heard. That's where he can be understood. We have to isolate, don't we, ourselves from this world. You know, I don't think that, that God expects any of us, brothers and sisters, to live like John the Baptist. You know, we're taught in the book of Ecclesiastes to live a a basic life, having contentment with food and raiment. You know, he doesn't expect us to live like John the Baptist, but what he is saying is that we have to cut off ourselves from this world, go out into a desert, even if in our minds, and there uncluttered from society, we can hear the voice of God. And that was his message. He lived his message. He was in the desert for all of those years, in a world that, that seethed in intrigue and all of its class distinctions, the voice was crying, come out here, come out here and learn something about God. But that verse says something else. John the Baptist claimed to be just a voice. Now I understand that when you have a voice, you listen. But what does that verse say? He was in the deserts until the day of his showing unto Israel. So they were looking at something. It wasn't just that they were hearing a voice, they were seeing something as well. You know, when the Lord Jesus Christ spoke about John, he said in Luke 7, verse 24, what went ye out to see? So it wasn't just a voice, although John claimed to be only that. They were seeing something about. There was something they saw in his character that was impressive too. And we need to go down this morning and we need to have a look at him. This was exhibition in the wilderness. His exhibition in the desert. Well, well, what do we see? Let's come to Matthew chapter 3 because Matthew gives us those details. What went ye out to see, said the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here he is. And everyone would have seen him. You know, as we turn up that reference, let's just have a look at the, the layout of, of the land where John was. John was in the wilderness, the deserts, until the day of his showing. So he was here in the, the wilderness of Judea, which is very inhospitable terrain, very difficult to, to, to walk through because it's just up and down and up and down and up and down, very dry. He was in the wilderness until the day of his showing unto Israel. Now, when John appeared on the scene to the, to the nation of Israel, he moved out of the wilderness and he went down here on the valley floor, which as we know is the lowest spot on the earth, just north of the Dead Sea on the Jordan River, and there he manifested himself to the people. 
and everyone would have been looking down on him. These hills, where you see this, this rough part of the map, those hills are about 3,000 feet above sea level. John is down here on the valley floor, probably about 1,400 feet below sea level. So everybody's looking down on him. It's like they're in a grandstand, and down there on the valley floor is this, this aberration. What were they all looking at? Everybody would have seen him looking down the valley floor, down the amphitheater of nature. Matthew chapter 3, this is what they saw. Verse 3, this is he that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying, In the wilderness prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And this same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Now that is the total of John's possessions. One leather girdle and one camel's hair garment. He had nothing. He was completely undistracted by this world. That was all he had. As we said, a camel skin doesn't have to be dry clean too often, and grasshoppers don't need much cooking. And because of that, he was available. God could get through to him. God could speak to him. Now, it's interesting that there's a fascinating difference. We saw the parallels, didn't we, with Elijah. And Elijah was dressed in nature, um, you know, like, a, like a piece of granite that was just cut out of the, the escarpment of Gilead. But of Elijah, it said that his clothing was the skin of an animal. It doesn't say what one. But of John, we're told what animal it was. Because it says there in verse 4 that it was camel's hair. Now, why, why would the scriptures note that? Well, you know, the camel of all creatures, brothers and sisters, is made by the creator for the desert. It's the ship of the desert. You look at the unique features of a camel. A camel has special foot pads which mold itself to the, the sand of the desert. If you put a camel on rocky ground, he's hopeless. But if you put him on the sand of the desert, he's, he's absolutely sure. He has a hump in which to sp store his food. The poor camel doesn't know how long he's going to have to be trotting. So he has a hump that stores food. He's got a massive three-chambered stomach in which to store water so that he can constantly have a, a replenishment. His nostrils are all pinched in. So you see the, the blowing sands of, of the desert can't get in his nose because they're pinched in. It has lips that are like leather, so it can eat cactus and all of the, the plants that are, that are in the desert. It sheds its coat just before the hot weather. So it has a thick coat in the winter and it has a small coat in the summer. It can go 100 miles in 12 hours. And if it needs, it can go for four successive days without a rest, keeping going and keeping going and keeping going and keeping going. And John's clothed in him. Now, you look at, look at those characteristics. Doesn't the word of God need to be in several chambers of our thinking? Don't we need to have special shoes to get through the terrain of the world? You know, don't we need to have food stored up in case of a, a long trial that we're going through? Don't we need to have our nostrils you know, pinched in so we, we don't get the, the, the degrading sands of criticism and, and negativity in there? You know, we need to wear warm coats in the winter to prepare for the, the trials of the winter. And then when the hot weather is beating down on us, we need to have our, our thin coats. He's adapted to his circumstances. 
and John's clothing. And that's what God is saying to us in that camel. He is made for the desert, and so must we. We've got to be made, not for this world, and to be conformed to that, but to be made for the desert. And you know, the camel was unclean under the law of Moses. He's a priest, and John's clothed in him. What God has cleansed, brothers and sisters, no man was to dare call common or unclean. That message was reverberating out of John. What went ye out to see? Well, he's dressed in that because that's the way that we have to be, adapted to hardship, adapted to the difficulties of the desert, having the word of God in, in several chambers of our, our thinking. And what was his, uh, his energy bar, his, ener- his uh, strength? It was locusts. Now, who would live on locusts? I'm told they taste like almonds, which I've never put to the proof, but that's what I'm told. Now, this seemed like a strange thing to eat locusts until the days in which we live, and you can go to Whole Foods and and pick up yourself a bag of chirps, which are sort of a a cricket-based potato chip now. But everything about this man is is linked with the desert. He's eating locust. Now, locusts were clean under the law of Moses, depending on what type. You see, if a creature, if a little locust could, could spring above the earth, you could eat it. God didn't authorize them to eat anything that groveled in the, in, in the dirt. But if a little creature could go doing like that, he's clean. Now, you think about the message of John the Baptist. What is he counseling us to do? Get above this life. Spring above by setting our affection upon what's above. Get away from the world. Get away from the earth. Go out into the desert. And if you can spring above, you're clean. And he's eating those grasshoppers. That was his message. He wasn't asking us to do any more than what he's doing himself. He lived his message. You've got to get away from this world if ever God is going to, to speak to you. Now, what were the locusts flavored with? Well, they're flavored there with wild honey. Now, it doesn't mean sort of angry honey that, that is wild in, in that sense. The word really means natural honey. And where is it found in the land of Israel? It's mostly found in the desert under a rock. So Deuteronomy chapter 32 talks about how I gave them honey out of the rock. Now, this picture here is a picture of Bethsaida, which is one of the the places you can visit in the land of Israel today. Now, what happened when we went to Bethsaida is in all of these rocks that you see here, the bees had made their nest. And they were making honey in between all of these rocks here. Actually, there were so many bees and so many wasps that we actually couldn't visit Bethsaida because we would have, you know, we would have been stung. So there was honey out of the rock. So, but again, everything about this, this man is connected with the wilderness, with the desert. And notice the context of Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 talks about how God, in, in his blessings upon, upon Israel, he gave them honey out of the rock. And you know what it says two verses later? It says, I have brought you into a waste howling wilderness that I might instruct you. And in that context, we read about honey out of the rock. Now, what is, what is John doing? Come out into the wilderness and learn something about God that I might instruct you. 
It was in the wilderness where the instruction of the word takes place. And we can't do that literally. But we have to do it in our minds. Close the door to our studies. Go out at least in our minds. Walk out into the backyard and sit down and and open the word. But how are we ever going to do that? Where we sit down and we open the Bible and we read for five minutes and then ding! And then we, we, we address whatever the ding is. And okay, well, what's this verse saying to me? We read another two minutes and then ding! Now how are we ever going to understand the Bible like that? How are we ever going to hear God's voice? You know, put those things away. They're, being, they're dragging us away all, all the time. Put the cell phone away. Turn the Wi-Fi off. And transport yourself to where the voice of God is heard, and he will speak to your heart. As Hosea said, I will allure her into the wilderness, and there I will speak to her heart. So you see, the point of these studies, brothers and sisters, is really not very hard to grasp. What's very difficult is the application. And it's perhaps harder now than any other age in in human history. You, know, you can read articles on, you know, that have been put out by people who have no connection with the Bible, no belief in God at all, and they'll tell you that the Internet destroys your mind. You know, they'll tell you that television damages the left-hand hemisphere of the brain, whether it's a good program or not. You know, that's what people in the world say. You know, they've got no connection at all with, with the Bible. So we've got to put away those things. John had no possessions. He had no status. He had a very low opinion of himself. But he lived what he taught. And God was able to get through to him. His clothing is desert. His food is desert. He lives in the desert. So let's come to have a look at him now in the desert in Luke chapter 3. The day of his exhibition unto Israel. What went ye out to see? To see, asked the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here, here it is. Now, good Bible study is, is always based as we've been taught, on good Bible reading. And here is one of those passages of Scripture where all you have to do is read it because the message is so evident. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 3. It lists all of the world's greats. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee. I mean, how's this for a who's who of names? And his brother Philip, tetrarch of Itcherea, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest. The word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias. Where? In the wilderness. You see, there's all the world's greats, real prizes, some of them. And there's all their territory. And it finishes up with the last two, the high priest of the God of Israel himself. And the word of God went past every single one of them. And it goes to John in the wilderness wearing a camel skin. In the wilderness, really, whose territory none of those guys would have wanted. God can't get through to Tiberius Caesar. He couldn't get through to Herod. John tried with Philip and Herod Antipas. But God's word just wouldn't find room in their life. But God could get through to John because he was unencumbered with the things of this life. He couldn't speak through Herod. He couldn't speak through Tiberius Caesar because 
the things of this world were too important. They had a position to protect. They had riches to preserve. But when you're thinking about those things, brothers and sisters, you can't think about God. And so the word of God goes past every one of them, and it comes to John in the wilderness wearing a camel skin. He's not asking us, brothers and sisters, to do any more than what he's doing himself. There is his message. We have to leave the world. We have to leave our possessions. We have to put behind materialism. We don't need those things. All we need to live a godly life with contentment is the things which God provides, food and raiment, and and time to study the Bible. So John was down here in verse 3, and he was baptizing, it says, the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, to a Christadelphian, of course, this is a very familiar concept. Baptism, we are all very familiar with. But you see, you have to understand what the scribes and Pharisees taught. See, they they taught there was a difference between Jews and, well, we'll call them Gentiles, but they called them dogs. And a Jew, when he came to the age of 13, we know, was inducted as a son of the covenant in a very elaborate ceremony. But but what if a Gentile wants to be a son of the covenant? What do you have to do? You got to wash him. Baptism was something that Jews reserved to wash filthy and unclean Gentiles. And what's John saying here? This is absolutely staggering to them. It's not just Gentiles who've got to get baptized. You've all got to get baptized. Unless you are prepared to all go down into the muddy stream of Jordan and confess that all flesh is grass, then there's no way that you're going to find repentance. You know, imagine, imagine a Pharisee having to, to lower his, his dignity to that. You know, with his, his royal robes and his broad phylacteries. You've all got to get down into that muddy mess and confess who you are. Have a look at what John was to do. Come back to John's chapter, Isaiah 40. As we've said, we, we're going to be here in every session because this is the work of John all spelled out, not just in the Gospels, but it's all predicted here by Isaiah. In view of John's preaching, the glory of Yahweh was to be revealed, says verse 5. The glory of Yahweh was to be revealed. And all flesh, verse 5 of Isaiah 40, shall see it together. The word together there really means to become alike. It's the word ekad, which means to be united, to, to become alike. This glory will bring everyone to a common level, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, no matter your race, Everything will be brought to a common level by what John is about to do. All distinctions will disappear. And it was the glory of Yahweh, it says, that will, that will do that. Now, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, you needn't turn to it, but it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's the glory of verse 5 being revealed. That's in John chapter 1. John chapter 3 deals with Nicodemus, a man who thought his blood was blue and everybody else's was red. And John chapter 4 deals with a corrupt, evil woman of Samaria, the other end of the scale. And God brought them together. He met Nicodemus at night. 
He met the woman of Samaria at the blaze of day. He said to Nicodemus, God so loved the world. He said to the woman of Samaria, salvations of the Jews. He brought them together. He narrowed Nicodemus's perspective and he, sorry, yeah, he broadened Nicodemus's perspective and he narrowed the woman of Samaria's because all status, all positions, everything fades into insignificance in the view of that glory. And every valley was to be exalted. Every mountain and hill was to be made low. The crooked places shall be made straight. And so those lives that were crooked in God's sight would be straightened out and the rough places smoothed over. Now, there are four classes in that verse. There's the valleys, there's the mountains and hills, there's the crooked places, and then there's the rough places. And when we come to the record of Luke chapter 3, there are only four classes of people who ask John questions. There's the common people that he elevated, the scribes and the Pharisees that he leveled, the tax collectors with all their, their crooked dealings as tax collectors. He, he straightened them out. And down came the Roman soldiers with all of their brutality. And he said, do violence to no man. He smoothed them over. What a remarkable fulfillment there is of Isaiah chapter 40. Those are the only four classes that asked him questions. The common people whom he elevated, the scribes and the Pharisees whom he leveled, the tax collectors he straightened out, and the rough, brutal Roman soldiers. They said, what are we going to do? And he smoothed them over. What we now want to consider is what he said, in fact, to each class. Come back to Luke chapter 3. So the glory of Yahweh is revealed, and all flesh will be made alike. So who comes there? Well, of course, it's the scribes and the Pharisees, as you can expect, that, that come for, first. They make their presence known immediately. Luke chapter 3 and verse 7. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now in verse 7, where it says there, the multitude, we know from the parallel account in Matthew chapter 3 that this in fact was the scribes and the Pharisees. They come first to be baptized. Do you know what a Pharisee means? The word Pharisee, it means a separate one. It's a separate one. Have a look at who they're talking to. Who's separate? John the Baptist or them? You know, down come the separate ones, and, and John doesn't even let them open their mouth. The Pharisees, who you know could talk, who make long prayers for a pretense, they don't even get one word in this record. John just cuts them off. Before they even get there, he says, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. So in Isaiah's prophecy, the mountains are now going, because they were the mountains of that day in Jewish society. They were the clergy. The mountains are now, John doesn't even let them get a word in. Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for Repentance, and, and what he's actually doing is he's really drawing on the, the figure of the land. You see, Jordan overflows its banks during the time of harvest, every spring. And if you've ever seen a, uh, you know, a river 
flood and then recede, what it does is it leaves behind it all the, the debris and the, the trash and the, the sticks and the, the leaves. It leaves that behind it as, it as it recedes. Then in the land of Israel, it gets really, really hot. And it bakes all of the debris and the bracken and the trash that the Jordan has washed up. And it makes it really, really hard. And it's really caked. And in John's day, you know who got down into, into all that debris and all that bracken? snakes. You know, in Zechariah the prophet, in Jeremiah the prophet, he warned people about the Jordan. There were vipers down there. There were lions down there. It was a dangerous place. And so what the farmers used to do is they would sometimes put the torch to that trash and all that bracken down there along the Jordan, and out would come all the snakes fleeing away. Oh, serpents and generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, says John. Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. See, the mountains are being leveled. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1 said this, The day is coming that shall burn as an oven, and yea, upon all that are proud and all that do wickedly, and he will leave him neither root nor branch. And the end of that chapter says, Behold, I send you Elijah. So here is John drawing on the figure of the, of the times. You know, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You generation of vipers. Bring forth fruits, meat for repentance before I ever baptize you. They don't even get a word in. They don't even get a word in. You see there in verse 7 where it says, oh, generation of vipers. The word actually is a little brood, a little brood of snakes that would be fleeing from the, this fire that the farmer would would use to, to burn up all that trash. The little, little brood of, of snakes. Many years later, Jesus came along and he called them a generation of vipers, but then he said, oh, generation of vipers, he said, ye serpents. And he used a mature word, therefore, for serpents. They're just a little brood here. But by the time the Lord comes along in Matthew chapter 23, where he absolutely abrades them for their iniquity, he calls them serpents. So this little brood had now matured in its iniquity and it had become a full-blown serpent. You have to change your thinking before I'll ever baptize you. By the time the Lord came, they hadn't changed and they had grown up. Now, just to remind ourselves where we are, John is baptizing right here where this, this arrow is at Bethabara. Bethabar, you may remember, was where the children of Israel crossed in the days of the Exodus. He's not baptizing in the Dead Sea. He's baptizing a little further north in the Jordan at Bethabar. You know what he says next? He says, don't think to say within yourselves that we have Abraham to our father, but I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Do you remember what Joshua did with the stones when they crossed? You see, there were stones in the Jordan, in the muddy filth of Jordan, that the priests had to pick up 12 of them and put them in the land. And then Joshua, not the priest, Joshua took 12 stones that were native to the land, native to the land. He took those 12 stones and put it back in Jordan, and Jordan washed them over. Joshua did that. God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So, 
Just because you're native to the land, just because you're Abraham's natural descendants, that doesn't mean anything. Joshua took the stones that were native to the land and stuck them in the Jordan. And then stones that weren't native to the land, you could say Gentiles, stones that aren't native to the land were picked up out of the muddy filth of Jordan and put in glory in the promised land. God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. He just keeps on going. I mean, the indictment just, just you, you get a feeling here for this, the way John thought about these people. He, he knew they absolutely needed a dressing down. And he says, the axe is laid, verse 9, at the root of the tree. Every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. You know, when Israel planted a fruit tree, they weren't to touch it for three years. They were to leave that alone and give it to God. If it did bear fruit, in the fourth year, they chopped it down. So John is here at the beginning of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, which lasted three and a half years. And he's saying, there's an axe at the root of that tree. You've got three years. Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. Three years later, Jesus comes along, and he gives a parable in Luke chapter 13, a parable of, of a fig tree in a vineyard. It had been going for three years. It hadn't brought forth fruit. And he says, cut it down. And someone says, well, let it go a little further. Let, let's see if it, if it brings fruit. If it doesn't, then cut it down. Look at the correlation now between John and, and Jesus in their teachings. And your brothers and sisters, we don't know how much longer we have. Is it three years? I don't know. There's an axe. It's there. If we don't bring forth fruits meet for repentance. Now, I like to think about that verse because I think, you know, I, I think I've got an unlimited amount of time in life. You know, I always, one of my worst problems is I think, well, I'll do it tomorrow. But there's an axe if I don't bring forth fruit. We've got to do it now. Today, if you will hear his voice, said the psalm, harden not your hearts. He's, what, a, what a verbal blast this is from, from John. Who could stand up to that? The mountains? Shh. Not accepted. Don't come here until your attitude changes. What about the valleys? What about the yous and me's? What about the working class? Verse 10. The people, this is the common people, asked him, saying, what, what shall we do, John? You know, the, the common people, they, they would have just witnessed the Pharisees, you know, getting upbraided. And they'd have been a little bit more confident. You know, John, we're not like those guys. You know, we, we're not proud. We're not materialistic. You know, we're, we're, just, we're just common folk. We're not like those Pharisees. What, what should we do? He that's got two coats, give one away. And every eye in that audience would have been on his coat. And if he offered you his coat, brothers and sisters, you wouldn't take it. And he that has food, let him share it. And all eyes are looking at a handful of grasshoppers. And if he invited you to dinner, brothers and sisters, you'd feel sick. Those are the only two things, in fact, that we know about John's personal circumstances, and they're the only two things he tells the common people. What he ate 
and what he wore. You know, as I was going through these notes this morning, I was, I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I would love to be in that position. You know, I would love to be able to, to tell you today to, you know, you need to do this in your life and you need to do that in your life. And, and every one of those things that I'm telling you, I do in mine. But, but I don't. But see, John could say that, you know, without any hypocrisy at all. You know, I've, I've got, a, you know, nice suits. I've got a car. I live in a better than average home. You know, I, I wish I could stand up here and say, you know, whatever you see me do, do the same yourself. But he could. He wasn't asking any of us to do what he hadn't done himself. Share your coat and share your food. You know, hearts, hearts would have melted. You know, the common people come up confident. They've just watched the Pharisees get blasted. We're not like those guys. Well, what do we do, John? And then they all look at his coat. And they all look at his food. And they think, oh. Well, now they have something to think about. Now they have something to to think about. John didn't let anybody off easy. And what he told the common people, those are the only two things we know about him. His food and what he ate. So they now have something to think about. So the common people, as opposed to the scribes and the Pharisees, the common people are elevated. If they could take that advice and put it to practice, they would be elevated. Now who's next? Class number three, the publicans. Now these, of course, are the people. They are the crooked places of Isaiah chapter 40. All their crooked dealings as, as tax gatherers, and they're going to be made straight. They're going to be smoothed over. You know, the tax system in that day was, was known as the farming system, and it was full of corruption. You had the, the treasurer in Rome who was at the head, and he would say to his under-treasurer, you look, I don't care what you charge, this is my cut. And then the under-treasurer would say to the under-under-treasurer, uh, look, I don't care what you charge, but the Roman treasurer needs this, and I need this, and well, whatever you charge is your business. And then the under-under-treasurer would go to the Matthews and would go to the, to the Zacchaeuses and say, well, the Roman treasurer wants this, and the undersecretary wants this, and the under-under-secretary wants this, and I don't care what, what you get, but um, this is what we need. And so people like Zacchaeus and people like Matthew had to charge exorbitant amounts just to get, to get any way to survive. It was called the farming system, controlled by the, the treasurer in Rome. They had to charge incredible amounts, which is why people hated them. You know, I thank God that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this publican. I mean, it's hard to to overemphasize how much these these guys, tax collectors, were despised. So what does John say to them? Is he going to let them off easy? Verse 13, exact no more than what is appointed you. Oh, that really hurt. I mean, there's, there's no place that you can hurt someone in the world more than hitting them in their pocket. I mean, every time you hear of a tax increase, you know, every time you get a bill in the mail, I mean, it hurts. He says, if the taxes say that's how much you receive, then that's what you receive. Only tax what you need. Exact no more than what is appointed to you. Oh, that would hurt because you see all the cream is gone. All the, all the extra that, that, a, that a tax collector would want, that's all gone. 
only tax what you need. I mean, he may get a little bit of commission, but all the cream, all the extra money is gone if you follow that advice. You know, you live paycheck to paycheck. Just exact no more than what is required you. Only take what you need and nothing more. Oh, the, that, the rough places would have been straightened out, wouldn't they? The crooked places. They would be straightened out in the view of, of that advice. You know, one thing that impresses me every day is when Paul said, the love of money is the root of all evil. There is not a crisis in this world. There is not a crime that is committed that does not have somewhere along the line to do with money. Money is at the bottom of every ill that we see in the world. And that's where John hit them. Exact no more than what is appointed. Exact no more. That would have really hurt. I mean, these are already people who are ostracized, people who are hated, people who maybe need a, needed a lift up in life. He said, you only take what you need. He didn't necessarily tell them to, to give up their vocation. He said, only take what you need. Be content with what you have. The crooks were straightened out. And you know who the fourth class was that came down? Of all people, down came the Roman soldiers in all their brutality. And as they sent their delegate to John, you know, the guy would have plunked his spear in the ground and say, what do we do? In a, in a threatening manner. Hey, you, what do we do? What do you have to say to us? Did John shrink back in, in fear? John told them three things. He said, do violence to no man. Don't accuse anyone falsely. And be content with your wages. Now, the three things really all have to do with one thing. And that's money. Do violence to no man. What they would do is the Roman rations were very, very small. And so what would they do to make extra money, get extra rations, they would threaten people. They would do violence to them and take their rations. He says, do violence to no man. Nor accuse any man falsely. You know, if they wanted to get in the good graces of a, of a high-ranking general or, or, or legion in, in the Roman army, a legionnaire, they'd go to him and say, well, he, you know, so-and-so is plotting against you and there's this, uh, there's this aim to, to take down your position. I'll tell you all about it if you pay me. And be content with your wages. The Roman soldiers did not make very much. All three of those things actually have to do with one thing. Money. Brothers and sisters, how much did John have in the bank? Think money worried him? How diversified was his portfolio? Are we content with our wages? You know, if I was to tell you that you're going to get a 20% pay cut starting next month, how did you feel? A 25% pay cut? A 30% pay cut? How would you feel? Would you still be content? Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to say, I don't have a problem with money when you got plenty. But what if, what if someone started, started poking you and started taking more, and they're taking more now? How would you feel? Be content with what we have. And I, I think what that means at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, is that we always live within our means. We should always live within our means. We don't rack up 
credit cards. You know, we don't spend beyond what is necessary. We live within our means. If we're a wife, we learn to live within our husband's salary. We don't spend beyond it or, or look for ways to, to get around the, the barriers that he has set. We're content always with what we have. John says, take the salary you've been given, Roman soldier, and be happy with that. The rough places were made smooth. You know, I wonder how you could have been a Roman soldier after implementing those three things. I mean, I don't know if you could. I mean, this was a verse that back in the days of the Vietnam War, our brethren would be getting hit with. You know, so you see, John doesn't say give up their, their job as soldiers, does he? Well, if you put into practice that advice, I don't know how good of a Roman soldier you'd be because that was their lives. That was how they survived. But he smoothed them over. And so there is the summary. Every valley shall be exalted. The common people were elevated. Every mountain and hill, the scribes and the Pharisees were leveled. The crooked places were made straight and the rough places Plain. Or as Isaiah 40 put it, the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall become alike. Everybody's on one level after that exhibition. The crowd would have gone home and not only would they have been really struck with what they heard, brothers and sisters, but it says in verse 15 that all men mused in their hearts whether he was the Messiah or not. If they're thinking... Oh boy, I hope he's not the Messiah, because if he's the Messiah, oh boy, have I got to clean up my life. Because his, his example was so unhypocritical. Everything he said, he did in his own life. You, know, you can imagine the common people, you know, heads down low and thinking, well, you know, I, I really wanted a vacation and, you know, I, I, I really wanted to live in prosperity like a Pharisee, but, you know, I guess it's best that I, I share what I have. And the Pharisees, would have, the Pharisees would have murmured to themselves, you know, who is he to call us those names in front of the people? I mean, we came down here with, with good intentions. We thought we were serious. And, and, and he said all those things about us, about fleeing from the wrath to come. And, you know, the publicans would, would go away and, you know, they'd say, well, you know, it's, it's one thing for him to say not to charge more, but, you know, I've, I've, I've got to make a living and, and I've got to do what I've got to do. And well, the, the truth may be important and I may need to get down to my Bible study and I may need to go visit those who are sick, but you know, I've got to earn a living too. Uh, and if I, if I do what he does, if I play it straight, then I'm not going to get the things that I want. And the soldiers might say, well, you know, it's, it's one thing for him to be living in a desert, but, but how can we do this occupation if we're not violent? If, I, if I'm not rough, if I don't, you know, mess people up and, and hurt them, then how can I make a dollar? And, and, and all of that, that really hurts. So they're all musing in their hearts whether John is the Messiah. Do you know why? Because all of them, Pharisee, commoner, publican, and soldier, would, would have to say in their hearts finally that, that however difficult it may be for me, I cannot say that guy's a hypocrite. What went you out to see? Ask the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that tells us, brothers and sisters, about the power of an example. The name of John became a household word all over the world, as we saw in our opening point. They knew him in Asia Minor. They knew him in Egypt. He was all over the land. 
Not because he broadcasted how great he was, but because of his awe-inspiring example of singleness of mind. He lived what he said. Now do we. If we say something, do we do it? If we say we're going to do something, if we say we're going to fulfill a commitment, do we do it? Or do we drag our heels? You know, heads would have been hung in shame on that day. But, you know, Luke doesn't leave it there. I'd like to finish with verse 18. You know, the people would have all gone away in their hearts and, oh, that, that hurt. And how am I ever going to apply that? But that's not all John did on that day. Well, in verse 18, it says, And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. I'd like to just give that to you from, from the diaglot. And exhorting many other things, he proclaimed glad tidings unto the people. Glad tidings, that's Isaiah 40, unto the people. So you, you picture Don, John down there on the, on the Valley 4. He had left them with, with stinging rebukes, advice that, that would have been really, really hard to implement. It would have hurt. I mean, to, 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 be, to tell a publican, you've got you to gotta only charge what is necessary and what the system says would have been very difficult. You know, telling the soldiers you essentially have to give up your jobs if you want to survive would have been very, very difficult. But, you know, the strength of that beautiful golden voice didn't just dwell upon the negative. He also went to the positive. You know, he would have said to the Pharisees, he would have said to the people, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is going to be like. He gave them encouragement. Yes, yes, I know I've had some hard things to say. Yes, I know I've had some, some difficult things to say. But, but let me tell you what the kingdom's going to be like. See, he gave them an incentive to press on. He gave them motivation to continue. And whilst to, to bark at people may have its place, we have to supplement everything we say that's hard with some, with some kind of encouragement and make people in our number feel like it's worth carrying on, like the kingdom is worth fighting for. Otherwise, we'll never really change anyone. And so verse 18 says there that, you know, yes, John had some hard things to say, and we have some hard things to say at times too, especially in this age where, you know, we can see the world making inroads into the brotherhood. You know, we can see that, that things are challenging, and we have to point out those challenges, but, but let's make sure that we're also giving people a reason to carry on. That's what John did. With many other things in his exhortation, he preached glad tidings unto the people. You know, it's, it's the majestic and, and powerful expositions that have changed me far more than getting a lecture from someone. You know, it's those positive things that we hear from the Word. Even the most simple exhortations have been the most powerful because they encourage me that, yes, it is worth going on. So what went we out to see, brothers and sisters? Look at those four classes. Put yourself there. How are you going to apply that advice? It says, we lay in bed tonight as we, we go to bed. You know, let's, let's try to get a mental picture of that, of that day. As John is down there on the valley floor, exhorting all of these people. You know, let's, let's say in our prayers before our God that we, you know, we'll try to make the most of the time that we have left. Let's take away those things that in our lives are not necessary to say that, you know, I'm sorry, Lord, for, 
the, the time that I've wasted in my life and, and I want to use it better and grind on in this wilderness and help me to make time to hear the voice, the, the voice that kings and queens and, and prime ministers and presidents will never, ever hear. And that's the wonderful voice of God's word. And let me never cease to be impressed with the power of what I went out that day to see. Thank you again, Brother Ryan. We left John on the desert floor, giving us that very rousing exhortation to live within our means, to live a quiet and simple life with the ability to isolate ourselves from this terrible world and, and allow the voice of God to speak to our hearts. And I think if you've learned that one lesson today, brothers and sisters, then we've all taken a gigantic step forward to the kingdom of God, because there really is no other way to the kingdom than that. But a new phase is coming for John and for Israel, as the words of the prophet are about to be fulfilled. Behold, I send my messenger, which was John, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. You know, whilst John was down there at the River Jordan baptizing others, he was in a fervor of expectancy because he knew one day, any time, the one of whom the Old Testament had spoken would arrive, the one in whom the, the purpose of God was to be focalized. And, and you can imagine John, as all Judea and all Jerusalem is coming down to hear him, one after the other, the common people, the soldiers, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, he knew one day that one would step out of that crowd who was to be the Messiah. And you can imagine his body just quivering with excitement as he awaited that day. And, and isn't that the state that you and I should be in today? The Lord is almost here. Any day now, we know he's going to step forth and proclaim himself. Any day now, the, the Messiah, the, the messenger of the covenant is to arrive. We have to be in that fervor of expectancy that John was in. For salvation will only be to those who love his appearing. The law and the prophets said the Lord Jesus Christ were until John. But now we come to this, this great transition. So let's start now in John chapter 1. As the excitement and the, the tension is, is building within John as that day approached. Now John is of course speaking these words here. He's, he's speaking them in in hindsight. And this was John's statement as he was looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 29 of John chapter 1. The next day, John 1 verse 29, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is before, before me. For he was before me. And I knew him not. 
but that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore I am come baptizing with water. Now, I knew him not. Now, John the Baptist knew Jesus personally. I mean, they were cousins. So he knew who he was clearly. But what John didn't know here was that that person, whom he'd always known, was to be the Messiah. And we learn also from verse 31 that John's task was not just to baptize others, but in that very process, one day out of the thousands that came down there to see John, one day Messiah would appear. And the way that Messiah was to be manifested to Israel was through the waters of baptism in Jordan. I knew him not, verse 31, therefore I am come baptizing with water. It was through the act of baptism that Messiah would be revealed to Israel. And as we'll see this morning, or this afternoon rather, it was absolutely necessary that Messiah be manifest and introduced to the nation in that way. It wasn't just that the, the crowds were there and it would draw a lot of attention, brothers and sisters. It was absolutely essential that Jesus go through the River Jordan, as we shall see. So whilst we're here in John chapter 1, we note the, the extraordinary description in verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now that is a monumental statement. You know, John is not just saying here that the Lord was meek and mild. You will never find in the Old Testament anywhere a male lamb for a sin offering. It's not in the law. It's not in the Psalms. It's not in the prophets. You'll find a female lamb for a sin offering. But you will never find a male lamb for a sin offering. And he's saying here in verse 29, here comes one that the law never foresaw. The Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin, not just of Jewish people, but the sin of the world. So it was never seen anywhere in the law, and it's efficacious for more than just Jewish people. What a statement. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And John was waiting for that lamb to be manifest at Jordan. I mentioned a moment ago that it had to be this way. It had to be this way for several reasons. It wasn't just as an example. It wasn't just because the crowds were there. I only know three men in the Bible who were manifested to Israel by coming up out of Jordan. And this, this is absolutely fascinating. And what God did was to demonstrate their leadership and to put them forth as the great captain of God's people by bringing them up out of that river. Now, those three men, of course, were Joshua, Elisha, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just take Joshua first of all, in Joshua chapter 3. And we'll see why it was that the Lord had to be manifest to Israel coming up out of that river. Joshua chapter 3, first of all. We'll just go through these quickly. Just to get the point, it's very simple to grasp. Moses has passed off the scene, and there would have been much apprehension about who the new leader was to be. So God says to Joshua, Joshua 3, verse 7, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so will I be with thee. And how was, that, how was that to be done? 
Thou shalt command the priests that bear the ark of the covenant, saying, When ye are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, ye shall stand still in Jordan. Now you see what was being done here. This day, Joshua, I will magnify you in the sight of all Israel. Now go and tell the priests to put their feet in Jordan. And as the priests, of course, put their feet in Jordan, the ark of the covenant would then pass over Jordan. Verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you into Jordan. Now that ark there represented, of course, the leadership of the nation for which Joshua stood. So as the ark went over Jordan, Joshua was magnified in the sight of all Israel. And Yahweh showed his acceptance of Joshua by connecting him with the ark going over the river Jordan by getting across that particular river. That's the first case. The next case, 2 Kings chapter 2. Elijah is gone. He's left the earth in a storm. The question is, who is going to be his successor? There were 50 aspirants for the job, 51 if you count Elisha. And how did God manifest his acceptance of Elisha? Verse 13, 2 Kings chapter 2. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood where? By the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is Yahweh Elohim of Elijah? So the question here is, is where did God go? Did he leave with Elijah? Or is the still small voice still working in Israel? Elisha picks up Elijah's mantle and he whacks the river Jordan. And what does Jordan do? It goes back. And Elisha goes right across into the promised land. Where is Yahweh Elohim of Elijah? He smites the waters and goes over. In verse 15, what do they say? Well, the spirit of Elijah must rest upon Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. So when the successor to Elijah came, he had to be manifest by coming out of what? Jordan. And he takes the man of Elijah, hits the water, and back it goes. Yahweh manifested his approval of the great captain by bringing him out of Jordan. So it begs the question then, well, why those three men, Joshua, Elisha, and the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the first reason, of course, is, is that they all basically have the same name. Two of them are identical. Joshua, Yahashua, is the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is but the Greek equivalent. And Elisha means the salvation of God. And they were all manifested as Yahweh's salvation in coming up out of that river. This day will I begin to magnify thee. The spirit of Elijah doth rest upon Elisha. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So that's the answer to question number one. Question number two is, well, why the river Jordan? Why would God choose to bring them out of Jordan? I think we can see the connection between the three men, but why Jordan? Well, the answer to that, brothers and sisters, lies in the very clear lesson for which Jordan stood. You see, Jordan begins way up north. The melting snows come off of Hermon. They, 
they go down and they form the River Jordan as it bursts from the ground up there at Banias. The water is crystal clear. In many places, it's, it's emerald green when it starts off. It starts off pure. God made man upright, says Ecclesiastes. Then you go down. 30 miles south, the water turns brown, murky. And the name Jordan means the descender. It starts pure, and as you make your way down, it gets dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. It has a long, long course in the land. You see, it starts way up in the north at the top. This lake, this body of water you see in the middle is the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan goes in the top of the Sea of Galilee, and then it comes out the bottom, and then continues to flow south. It starts right up at Hermon, 9,000 feet above sea level. Beautiful, clear, like, 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 the, like the face of the high priest, says Psalm 133. But as it makes its way south, it gets brown, it descends. Hermon is 9,000 feet above sea level. The Sea of Galilee is 692 feet below sea level. At Galilee, we're not even to the Dead Sea yet. At Galilee, it's 692 feet below sea level. We've gone down almost 10,000 feet in the space of about 40 miles. Jordan ever stood, brothers and sisters, for the flesh. And of course, the Sea of Galilee, which we really won't have time to talk about, it's the Sea of the Nations. It's, it's the wild, rough sea. Jordan goes in the top of Galilee and then comes out the bottom of Galilee. It stands for the flesh. And who can overcome the flesh? Nobody. Well, eventually, Jordan comes out of the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. There's the Golan Heights there in the background, and here's Jordan coming out of the, the bottom of the lake. It's 65 miles from the bottom of the Sea of Galilee to the top of the Dead Sea. And Jordan, as it makes its way down to the, sea, to, to the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth, it's this winding course. You know what it's like? It looks exactly like the winding of a snake as it goes down and down and down towards the Dead Sea. Jordan ever stood for the flesh, and anybody who can get through that river, who can be brought out of it, must be Yahweh's salvation. So it was absolutely critical that the Lord Jesus Christ be manifested at that place. And if you thought it was brown up north, you should see it down south. It gets more turgid, more stagnant. It moves so slow. They've actually got to use machines nowadays to push it along. It's so slow and stagnant. Man starts off great, doesn't he? You know, you got a bundle of joy in your arms. As Brother Robert said, it's also a bundle of propensities. And it goes down and down and down. So that's where we started up north. Beautiful, clear. And here's where we are as we go down south, a muddy, stinking stream. You know, you see these kids' books and these books put out by so-called Christian books of, Je of, of Jesus' baptism, and Jesus steps into the crystal clear water, and he's got a halo around his head, and the grass is all green. It's exactly the opposite to that. Jordan was a muddy, stinking mess. That as we mentioned in our last session, Zechariah the prophet warned people about, Jeremiah the prophet warned people about, he warned people about that Jordan. 
There were lions down there. There were vipers down there. It ever stood as a symbol for the flesh. And look at that, look at that water that's there. We were there about four or five months ago, another brother and I, and the flies were just swarming us. I mean, you've never seen more flies in your life. It's just, it's, even today, it's a nasty place. Prophets warn people who came in contact with that water. And any person who can get through that water has to be Yahweh's salvation. So Joshua, Elisha, and the Lord Jesus Christ were all manifested to Israel coming up out of that water. And where does it end? It ends in the Dead Sea, in the stagnation of death, the lowest place on the earth. So we've gone from Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet above sea level, to the Dead Sea, which is 1,492 feet below sea level, in really only the space of about 100 miles. It goes down and down and down into death. It follows that, that snake-like course. And of course, to get back to what we said in our last session, when a snake-like river overflows its banks, it really makes a mess. You know, one river that goes straight, yeah, but because all the water eventually overlaps and, and leaves a mess behind it. At about 30 miles, well, here's, here's a sign that says that you're at the lowest place on the earth. That's in meters, not feet, so the Canadians in here will, will know what I'm uh, referring to, Grant Penny's listening. About 30 miles north of where John was baptizing, there was a city called Adam. Adam. So this represents the mortality of man. Jordan ever stood, didn't it, for the flesh. And, and now we begin to understand why when God wanted to manifest his salvation to men, he did so by bringing them out of that water. Now, Joshua and Elisha were but types. They were but representatives. But there was a man of our nature who came through Adam, the stagnation of death, but he got out of it. And of course, the only way that he got out of it was through the power of God. And anyone who can successfully negotiate that river has to be God's son. And John was waiting with, with bated breath for this to happen, for the tide of humanity that, that all ends up in the Dead Sea, to one day be reversed. And so we come now to the third chapter of Matthew. And just remember the slides that we just looked at and see Matthew's description of what the Lord did as he came down to identify with us in that river. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee, so he's basically traversed the whole course of that river, from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized. He's basically walked the whole course that we've just walked, from uprightness into the stagnation of death. He came from Galilee and descended, which is what the Jordan means, the whole course of that river. And of course, we know that was the place too where Naaman, Naaman the Syrian, had to get off his high horse and go down in to the water to acknowledge who he was. And it was only when he had done that that lo and behold, his leprosy went. And of course, John was embarrassed, wasn't he? You know, this tells you that clearly John knew who he was. But verse 14, John says, no, 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 no. I have need to be baptized of thee. And whence comest thou to me? So John knew who Jesus was. What he didn't know 
is that he was to be the Messiah. But he clearly knew him as a person. And he knew that the remarkable life that, that the Lord lived. He knew the character. And, and looking into those eyes, I mean, John was absolutely embarrassed. But put yourself for a second in John's shoes. Wouldn't you be embarrassed if you had to put the Lord Jesus Christ under the water? Knowing the life he lives and knowing the life you live? And so what is John going to do? You know, Lord, I have need to be baptized of thee. And whence comest thou to me? And furthermore, what was the reason that Luke specified that John was baptizing for? He was baptizing for the baptism of repentance, for the remission of sins. Jesus has absolutely nothing at all to repent of. And, and that would have added to the, to the extreme embarrassment. You know, he's, he's been putting common people and Roman soldiers and, and tax collectors in there. I mean, it's one thing to put those guys in, but this is a perfect man. He has absolutely no place in that water from that standpoint, if that's all it was. But of course, we know that that's, that's not all it was. John, he says, verse 15, there, there's like two key words in this verse. Suffer it to be so now. Now. When is now? When Jesus Christ was a man. Being found in fashion as a man. He's one of us, said the Apostle Paul. Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, why, how is the righteousness of God fulfilled? By asking a perfect man to be baptized. Well, John wasn't only baptizing, was he, brothers and sisters, for the baptism of repentance. What did John say he was? They said, John, who are you? He said, I'm the voice. And he connected that voice with the voice in Isaiah 40. Now, what did the voice in Isaiah 40 say? Well, just keep your hand here and come back to Isaiah chapter 40, where we've been in every class so far. Here is the key to John's life, all back here. We've looked at verse 9. We've looked at verse 3. In our last session, we, we looked at, uh, at 4 and 5. But what was the voice to cry? The voice is John. We know that from... John chapter 1. The voice said, what shall I cry? And Isaiah said, tell him this. Verse 6. All flesh is grass. All flesh, including the Lord's. Including him. All flesh is grass. And to go into that water was an acknowledgement that all flesh was grass. So had Jesus not submitted to that baptism, brothers and sisters, he would have been confessing to be a creature from another planet. All flesh is grass. Thus it becometh, and here's the other key word in Matthew chapter 3, us. All flesh is grass. You're flesh, John, and I'm flesh. All flesh is grass. And he makes the identification so the declaration on that day as the Lord was to go under the water was that his father was right, which was seen even more powerfully as we know on the cross. I mean, why did the Lord have to go to the cross to declare that his father is absolutely right in declaring the, the death of, of human nature? Because there is no value in this flesh that we possess. In my flesh, said the apostle Paul, dwells no good thing. 
There's nothing in this body that's worthy of perpetuation. And furthermore, as we know from bitter experience, you can't tame it. You can't train it. You can't do anything with this nature. All you can do is put it to death. It cannot be disciplined. It takes something else. So the Lord was declaring that my father was right. And this is what we all should be doing with our flesh, putting it to death. So when the Lord stepped into the water on that day, there were really two things that were being declared. He acknowledged that he was flesh and that as a member of the human race, he himself could do absolutely nothing. But what he was also declaring is he was making it clear who the real source of his strength was, and that was in God. And for those two reasons, John suffered Jesus. Just look at Isaiah chapter 42, whilst we're still in Isaiah. Isaiah 42. Here's a picture in this verse of the the greatness of our our God as he he takes the Lord Jesus Christ by the hand. Verse 5 of Isaiah 42. Thus saith El, Yahweh, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breadth unto the people upon it, the spirit to them that walk therein, I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light to the Gentiles. So that he's saying here to his son, as he takes the hand of his son, I want to I give you for a covenant, he says here to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in order to do that, he says, I've got to hold your hand. I've got to walk with you. I've got to take you there. And the Lord walked hand in hand with his father, ultimately to the cross. I've got to hold your hand. And the Lord on that day, as he went under the water and came up, he would have felt the warmth and the strength of his father's arm holding him there, keeping him, and giving him for a covenant of the people. So when God said, this is my beloved son, it wasn't so much a statement of of endearment as it was God saying, this is my son. That's how he got out of that river. Had he not been my son, he would still be in the stagnation of humanity into the Dead Sea. But he got out of that river because he was my son. And God held his hand like Abraham and Isaac. And they went forward to the cross. And so John suffered him. And Jesus went under the water. But Luke tells us that as the Lord went under the water and came up, he was doing something. And Matthew doesn't tell us this, but look at what Luke says. Jesus was doing. This is a touch that that Luke adds in his gospel that the other writers don't. When the transfiguration took place, the other gospels say that Jesus was transfigured, but Luke says he was praying. The other gospels say that Jesus went up under the water, but you know what Luke says he was doing as he came up from the water? Verse 21 of Luke 3. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized, he's one of the human race, and praying, the heaven was open. So as the Lord came up from the water, Luke says he was praying. Now, now why should Luke record that? And, and what, what did the, the Lord pray for? Well, here in Luke's gospel, we, for the rest of the chapter, we have this genealogy that just seems to be stuck here out of nowhere, going, going all the way back to Adam. And you think, well, what, what's, what's that here for? In a, in a chronologically ordered 
gospel, like Luke. But I think that's giving you a clue as to what the Lord was praying for. See, suffer it to be so now, he said to John, that we might fulfill all righteousness. All flesh is grass was was the message of John the Baptist, the the message of Isaiah 40. And as the Lord went under the water, he, he acknowledged that he was one of us. And cognizant, of course, that he wants to declare the righteousness of God, he came up out of that water. And and then comes all the genealogy of all the way back to Adam. And I think it's telling us that conscious in the Lord's mind as he came up out of that water on that day was the tremendous burden that he had to to share. That for 4,000 years back to Adam, and and we can even say for another 2,000 years back to us, the weight of having to save all this lineage was on his mind. And he prayed that the Father would give him the strength to to save all of that lineage, to save all of of mankind. I mean, the salvation of great men like Abraham and David depended on this one. And so he prayed that the Father might give him the strength to save all that lineage. When the Father saw that action, he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There was an immediate acknowledgement by God of his faith. Thou art my Son, and I'm exceedingly well pleased with that. He prayed. Just a touch that that Luke adds as he came up out of that water. Verse 22 says, And the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. You know, John, which I won't take you to, John says that that spirit settled upon him like a dove and it remained on him. So it wasn't that the dove came there as he came up out of the water and then the dove left, the spirit left, right afterwards. John says that that spirit came on him that instant and it stayed on him from that point onward. The spirit was there. He was God manifest in the flesh. He was Emmanuel. So so why a dove? Whatever a dove represents, you know, you really have to relate it to to what's happening here. You know, of all the characteristics that we know about a dove, it's, it's harmless, it's a symbol of peace. We know two things, and, and I think they fit this case like, like a hand fits a glove. You know, the two features that I think are important is that the dove is a very clean little bird. A dove will not put its feet in mud. It's a very, very clean little bird. And so Song of Solomon says, my dove, my undefiled. You think about the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was clean. He was not one that put its foot in in mud. The second quality that we learn about is that the dove really, it it belongs to the pigeon family, so it has homing instincts. A dove will always come home to where it belongs. So so you think about this. He's clean, he's spotless, and the spirit then comes home where it belongs. It rested upon him. He was clean. The spirit of his father, which had made that life holy, had made it clean. The origin of his morality being in heaven, that spirit homed in where it belonged. What else could it do? And it remained with him. You know, know, the dove is is mentioned one other place, one famous place in scripture. If you come back to Genesis chapter 7, We'll just note a a parallel here with the first time we read about it in the Bible. Genesis chapter 7, where there was a baptism. 
You know, the flood, says Peter in his epistle, was a baptism. The ark was, was borne aloft as the, the flesh was washed away. So it's Genesis chapter 7 and verse 22. Note, note these words and their similarity to Isaiah 40. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life. Of all that was, in, was on dry land, died. So all died. All flesh, verse 21, died that moved upon the earth. Well, we've just read that all flesh is grass. So you've got all flesh died, all flesh is grass. Now, what does Noah then send out of the ark? He sends a dove, chapter 8 and verse 8. He sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove, being the creature that it is, it found no rest for the sole of its foot. And where did it go? It came back where it belonged. It homed in, back into the ark. And Noah pulls the dove in and it came home where it belonged. So you've got that parallel. All flesh died and the dove comes. So the Lord comes to the river Jordan. He proclaims that all flesh is grass and the dove comes. It homed in where it belonged on that very clean and undefiled man. So in Luke chapter 3, let's just finish this up. As we've really left John temporarily, haven't we? We've begun making a study of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it was necessary, of course, that as John stood there and witnessed that event, that he just stand there as an awe-stricken spectator. Well, Jesus heard a voice in Luke chapter 3, a voice that came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, Luke 3, verse 22, in whom I am well pleased. Now, Rotherham says in his translation, this is my son, the beloved. This is my son, the beloved. It's the same word that's used in the Septuagint version of Isaac and Abraham. Now, I think we all know the connection, don't we, between the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ and the offering of Isaac, as a, as a father and a son cooperated, didn't they, to, to go to Mount Moriah. But why is, is that language so, so reminiscent of what we find here in verse 22? Because Abraham, as he, as he raised the knife, as he was about to come down upon his son, it says, there fell a voice from heaven. Well, here we have, there fell a voice from heaven. All the gospels say there came a voice from heaven. That voice had gone way back, hadn't it, to Genesis chapter 22. And it was the voice of God to Abraham that saved his son from death. But the Lord Jesus Christ, as we know here, would, would not get that privilege. And so Abraham had to look behind him. He looked behind him and he saw that the ram that was caught in the thicket. Here was God's son entangled in our problems. There wasn't any way out for him. He came to identify with our weakness, brothers and sisters, that in doing that, we might identify with his strength. And there was the ram with its, its, its horn, its power, caught in that thicket. The thorny branches, our, our sins, our problems, our difficulties. The Lord came and identified himself with all of that. He, to get us up out of the river Jordan and to stand us in newness of life in the promised land. Well, John stood there as just an awe-stricken spectator. 
his course has now come to an end. Because really from that moment onwards, it's, it's vital, isn't it, that he must decrease. Well, as we move on in our studies, brothers and sisters, we'll see just how taken John was with that scene. That scene there at the River Jordan. How he drew constant attention to the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You know, from this point, Jesus was driven into the wilderness. He was tempted to the Diabolos 40 days, and then he came back and saw John. And John sees Jesus coming, and John's got two disciples with him, John and Andrew. And John said, there he is. There's the one, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. His disciples were clinging to him. You know, that tells you how great John was, that even after this, this event here in Luke chapter 3 with Jesus, John's course is, is finished, effectively. And he says to the disciples, that's who you have to follow. And they won't leave him. They won't leave him. They're clinging to it. And he says, no, my work is done. Listen to me. There's the lamb. And it says that as Jesus walked past, John stood. So as Jesus keeps walking, John stops. He stops walking as if to say, my work is over. They'd heard the voice and they were now ready to follow him. As Jesus walked past, they left John and they followed Jesus. So it is our great and earnest prayer, brothers and sisters, that our, our studies today on John have, have achieved that end, that, that having heard the voice, let's move in behind those two disciples and follow in Jesus' footsteps.